Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. In uh, the epilogue to warmth, you quoted President Barack Obama's first inaugural address and called his election a change in the cast script. What were the consequences on America's uh, approach to race in our society of his eight-year presidency? And I might add a more recent event, the selection of Kamala Harris uh, to the Democratic ticket. Well, these are these are tremendous, you know, historic events uh, that uh, that we are that you know historians will be uh, will be studying uh, for for generations to come. Um, this was the first time that someone who was not from a historic dominant group was you know was uh, elected to the White House, uh, to, elected to uh, the presidency. Um, there have been. Uh, there had been, I mean, if you think about just the symbolism of that, there had been uh, enslaved people who built the White House. There had been uh, African African Americans who worked, uh, you know, as butlers and servants in the White House. But to have someone come in uh, in this way uh, is just historic. Obviously, um, this was a, a change for the originating hierarchy of our country, what I call a caste system. And when there are changes in a caste system, uh, there are there are uh, effects that, that occur uh, throughout that system. I mean, I think I, I, I describe our, I have many metaphors in the book, and one of them is the idea of, of uh, the many ways that the word cast is used in our language. And one of the ways that it's used without the E is a cast in a play. And so on that stage, when you have a cast in a play, you have everyone in their assigned positions, a stage right, stage left, foreground, background, and everyone has the, the script of the, the, uh, their lines to speak, uh, the roles that they play, and everyone is accustomed to that as long as everyone stays in their assigned role. Um, but when there, if there's a change in that script, if there's something that happens that is that is not expected, then everyone has to figure out what does that mean for them. You know, they have to look back at the script and say, now, now, what is it that we do? And that's what happens when you think about, uh, a, you know, a cat, the cast. Um, you know, something that where there are roles and expectations and assumptions that are, are assigned or accrue to one's role in in a caste system in a hierarchy. And so we, you know, we are we have seen um, with this presidency, we we all saw uh, the pushback and the, and the uh, resistance and the uh, restrictions that were that were placed that um, would would in some ways not be unexpected when you look at it through the lens of caste. 
Let me move to outcomes in the few minutes that we have left. Uh, you write in the book, the goal of this work has not been to resolve all the problems, but to cast, there's the word again, a light onto <laughs> its history, its consequences, and its presence in our everyday lives and express hope for its resolution. But let me think about your metaphors. I thought about them a lot as I was reading them. Either the bones of the body or the, uh, the, in, the, in, the infrastructure of a house, both of those things are fairly impossible to change. So ultimately, is this the, are these metaphors pessimistic that that a caste structure can't be changed? I would not have written it if I thought that it could not be changed. That we could not um, find ways to push past these artificial boundaries. I mean, that's really why I, I wrote it. Um, you know, I, I have yet another metaphor having to do with when you go to the doctor. Um, the doctor, before you can even see the doctor, you're handed this, this uh, sheet, you know, these, this, uh, um, these forms that you're to fill out. And the doctor wants to know before he or she will even see you, the doctor wants to know your history. They want to know not, not just your history, but your parents' history and your grandparents' history. And that is, the, the, that is because before the doctor will even see you, he or she needs to know your history in order to better diagnose uh, your situation in order to uh, in order to help help you with that situation in order to resolve whatever your your problem may be and that is what I am that's what this uh, work is asking it's asking that we that we look at the history because you cannot fix something if you cannot see it goofy oh my god goofiest book I've read I can't say it's the goofiest book I've read this year, but it's the second worst book I've ever read. And it's certainly the goofiest book I've read since June. And it's been a year of goofiness, 2020 context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade. If I could pause from the goofiness for one moment, man, get on my Rosa Parks. Isabel Wilkinson has us reading a whole lot of nonsense uh, and I'm tired of putting up with it, frankly. Uh, And then we had to listen to a whole lot of nonsense right there. I don't even believe what she just said. She said she wrote this book. She wouldn't have written this book if she didn't think it would could be changed. Suggesting that she was writing this book to bring about a change in the system of white supremacy case oppression. I don't even believe that, but whatever she said she was writing because, and she gave another metaphor with a chuckle that when you go to the doctor's office and all of that is more goofiness and it's nonsense. And I get on my Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks didn't go and say, let me study the history of the bus company. Let me study the history of black people being mistreated on the bus. No. She said, you know what? I'm done. I'm totally done. I'm not getting up anymore. And that's that. Mistreatment is all about stopping mistreatment. You don't have to go back and know the whole history about racism or this area of the world or Saturn or anything else. All we have is someone being mistreated. Well, then let's cut that out. It's real simple. Like we make this like rocket science and goofy books like what we're reading like now contribute mightily to the problem with metaphors and goofy terms. We can't even call things by their name. Goofy all the way. 
10th study session. I'm so thankful. This is the penultimate second to last study session on Isabel Wilkerson's Cased. And I'm calling it goofy. Time magazine says that this is in the top 100 must read books of 2020. Let me see what they say. They say Pulitzer Prize winner Isabel Wilkerson has written an immediate classic with Cased. The Origins of Our Discontents. The veteran journalist examines race in America through the prism of caste, comparing the rigid system that suppresses black people in the U.S. to the social systems that have ruled India and Nazi Germany. The analysis, based on reporting, historical analysis, and a few personal anecdotes, comes at a crucial time in American history, and Wilkerson offers a frame to understand among other dominant topics in American discourse, why white working class citizens are voting against their interests and turning to Donald Trump. She argues that these voters, long members of the uppermost caste, regardless of economic standing, perceive recent social and political advancements to black Americans as a threat to their social status. There are a few more sentences i read most of it but that is in the list of the top 100 must read books of 2020 uh i say hogwash it is the second worst book i've ever read hyper goofy anytime you're talking to a white person or a victim of racism and it's metaphor every other thing. in fact you can't even ask them a question about anything and they metaphor, 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 er, <laughs> danger, danger. Whew, I'm so glad that we're done. Let's just get started. Context of white supremacy. Isabel Wilkerson's Cased. Audio segment number one. Part six. Backlash. Chapter 25. A change in the script. The greatest departure from the script of the American caste system was the election of an African-American to the highest office in the land. History has shown that there would be consequences to this disruption of the social order, and there were. What follows is not an analysis of the presidency of Barack Obama, but rather a look into the caste system's response to his ascension and the challenges it would place in his path. First, to break more than two centuries of tradition and birthright, it would take the human equivalent of a supernova, a Harvard-trained lawyer, a U.S. senator from the land of Lincoln, whose expertise was the Constitution itself, whose charisma and oratory matched or exceeded that of most any man who had ever risen to the Oval Office whose unusual upbringing inclined him toward conciliation of the racial divide, who famously saw the country as not blue states or red states, but as the United States, whose wife, if it could be imagined, was also a Harvard-trained lawyer with as much star power as her husband, who together with their two young daughters made for a telegenic American dream family, and who beyond all this ran a scrupulous, near-flawless campaign. A movement, really. It would take an idealist 
who believed what most Americans would have sworn was impossible for a black man to make it to the White House. Secondly, his opponent, a beloved and aging war hero from Arizona, a wise and measured moderate Republican in a party that had grown more conservative, ran a less than energetic campaign and made several misjudgments, the most significant of which was choosing an unpredictable former governor of Alaska, a woman prone to gaffes and to quirky word-salad misstatements, as his running mate. Then, in the months leading up to the election, a once-in-a-generation financial catastrophe descended on a country that seemed on the brink of financial ruin under the Republican administration then in power. Wall Street firms collapsed before our eyes, and the value of American homes, the primary source of many citizens' wealth, plunged in value, leaving millions of voters underwater. In October 2008, a few weeks before the election, envelopes arrived in the mailboxes of millions of American households, mailings that became inadvertent leaflets in favor of the Democrat. The quarterly 401k statements that showed losses of as much as 40% of people's savings in the last year under the Republican president. By that November, some 12 million homeowners owed more on their mortgages than their houses were worth in what was now being called the Great Recession, among the worst economic downturns since the Great Depression. People in the dominant caste, who might have been on the fence about taking a chance on an African-American candidate, were looking at massive losses with no end in sight. Hope had been Obama's mantra during times that badly needed it. A record tide of people from the lower and middle castes, people who swelled with pride and whose votes now felt like a mission, came out for him, and along with just enough dominant caste voters who believed in him too, swept Obama into the White House. The world was so joyous that a committee in Norway awarded him the Nobel Peace Prize within months of his inauguration. Only very rarely has a person to the same extent as Obama captured the world's attention, the Nobel Committee said, and given its people hope for a better future. Over the course of American history, the idea of a black man in the Oval Office was virtually unthinkable. But from a caste perspective and beyond his own personal gifts, his singular origin story was one that the caste system would be more willing to accept, if any. His growing up in Hawaii, the son of an immigrant from Kenya and of a white woman from Kansas, was free from the heaviness of slavery and Jim Crow and the hard histories of regular African Americans. His story did not trigger the immediate discomfort in the dominant caste, unlike those of everyday black people, who, if you scratch their family trees long enough, you run into a sharecropper cheated at settlement, or an ancestor shut out of a neighborhood because of redlining. People for whom these injustices were not history, but their own or their foreparents' actual lives. Rather, his origin story freed people in the dominant caste from having to think about the unsavory corners of American history. 
They could regard him with curiosity and wonderment, and even claim him as part of themselves if they chose. They could perhaps feel a connection to his mother and to his mother's mother, who tragically died just before Election Day. Both women were from the dominant caste and would not get to see how very far he would go in this world. The Delaware senator who would become his running mate, though, seemed to be speaking, however awkwardly, for some others in the ruling majority. You've got the first sort of mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice-looking guy, said Joe Biden. I mean, that's a storybook, man. After the election, white Americans in both parties extolled the progress the country had made in the past generation, relieved to be able to say that racism was a thing of the past. We have a black president, for heaven's sakes, they would say, by way of example. The fact is, though, this was a development that the majority of the dominant caste was not truly in a position to claim. The majority of white voters did not support him in either of his presidential bids. He had star power and a way with babies and pensioners. But no matter how refined and inspirational, well-spoken and conciliatory he was, Obama's victory did not occur because most voters in the dominant caste had become more open-minded and enamored of him. As with other recent Democrats running for president, he won despite the bulk of the white electorate. Even as they proclaimed a new post-racial world, the majority of white Americans did not vote for the country's first black president. An estimated 43% went for him in 2008. Thus, a solid majority of white Americans, nearly three out of every five white voters, did not back him in his first election, and fewer still, 39% voted for him in 2012. In the former Confederate state of Mississippi, only one in ten white voters pulled the lever for Obama. For much of his presidency, he was trying to win over people who did not want him in the Oval Office, and some who resented his very existence. As a measure of the enduring role of caste interests in American politics, the shadow of the Civil War seemed to hang over the 2008 election. It turned out that Obama carried every state that Abraham Lincoln had won in 1860, an election with an almost entirely white electorate, but one that became a proxy for egalitarian sentiment and for the future of slavery and of the Republic. The cultural divides of the Civil War on racial grounds, wrote the political scientist Patrick Fisher of Seton Hall University, can thus still be considered to be influencing American political culture a century and a half later. Lyndon B. Johnson, after signing the 1964 Civil Rights Act, is said to have predicted that the Democrats would lose the South for a generation for having stood up for the citizenship rights of African Americans. That prophecy would prove to be correct, but also an understatement. The Democrats would lose more than just the South, and for well longer than a generation. From that moment forward, white Americans overall moved rightward toward the Republicans as the country enacted more egalitarian policies. 
in the more than half century since that prophecy of 1964, no Democrat running for president has ever won a majority of the white vote. Lyndon Johnson was the last Democrat to win the presidency with a majority of the white electorate. Since that time, the Democrat who came closest, who attracted the largest percentage of white voters at 48%, was fellow Southerner Jimmy Carter in 1976. Only three Democrats have made it to the Oval Office since the Johnson and the Civil Rights era, Carter, Obama, and Bill Clinton, who won with 39% of the white vote in 1992 and 44% in 1996. With whites pulling away from the Democrats and accustomed to prevailing in presidential elections through their sheer numbers, the outcome of the 2008 election was seen not merely as the defeat of John McCain, but perhaps a defeat of the historic ruling majority itself, a challenge to the absoluteness of whites' dominance, wrote the political scientist Ashley Jardina of Duke University, who specializes in the behavior of the white electorate. Combined with census projections of an end of the white majority by 2042, Obama's victory signaled that the dominant caste could undergo a not altogether certain but still unthinkable wane in power over the destiny of the United States and over the future of themselves and their children and their sovereign place in the world. The symbolism of Obama's election was a profound loss to white status, Jardina wrote. This was something that no one in the dominant caste, or any other group in the country for that matter, had ever had to contemplate. It meant that people who had always been first now had to consider the potential loss of their centrality. For many, the ability of a black person to supplant the racial caste system, wrote the political scientist Andra Gillespie of Emory University, was the manifestation of a nightmare which would need to be resisted. That sense of fear and loss, however remote, brought to the fore for many whites, Jardina wrote, a sense of commonality, attachment, and solidarity with their racial group, a sense of needing to band together to protect their place in the hierarchy. The caste system sprang into action against this threat to the pre-existing order. The single most important thing we want to achieve, said Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, on the eve of the midterm elections in 2010, is for President Obama to be a one-term president. The opposition party would not succeed in denying him a second term, but would obstruct virtually every proposal he made and force him to resort to executive orders to accomplish his aims. Within nine months of his inauguration, the president was addressing a joint session of Congress on his health care plan when a heckler interrupted an ordinarily staid affair of pomp and ritual by yelling, You lie! The outburst came from a Republican congressman from South Carolina, Joe Wilson. It was considered so out of order that the House of Representatives passed a resolution of disapproval against Wilson, and Senator John McCain, the Republican who lost to Obama in 2008, declared 
that there was no place for it in that setting or any other. In early 2012, Air Force One landed just outside Phoenix for a presidential visit to a manufacturing plant in Arizona, a routine stop at the start of an election year in which the president would be seeking a second term. There on the tarmac to greet the president was Jan Brewer, the state's Republican governor. The encounter quickly turned tense for such a moment of formality. As the wind rustled the tarmac, the governor, blonde and slight of build, handed the president an envelope, and soon she was looking stern and agitated at him. She jabbed her finger at the leader of the free world, inches from his nose, her mouth in mid-yell, like a principal scolding a child facing detention. In the photograph of their encounter, the president appears calm and stoic, if slightly bemused, which had been his usual demeanor, as she sticks her finger in his face as if to be saying, and another thing, in some countries and with previous presidents, this might be seen as an act of aggression, a threat to a nation's head of state, a display of profound disrespect were it to happen at all. The photograph would become one of the defining images of the opposition and resentment President Obama faced in office. The difference in the accomplishments of these two people would not have been apparent from the optics of who was chastising whom. While the president was a graduate of Columbia and of Harvard Law School and had made a methodical march from state senator to U.S. senator to the Oval Office, the woman with the temerity to point her finger in his face had a two-year certificate as a radiology technician and had risen to the governor's mansion by accident of succession after having been Secretary of State. She was now a governor, one out of 50, compared to the U.S. president, the highest office in the land and the most powerful in the world. But Governor Brewer was from the dominant caste, her birth-ascribed status seen as inherently above his, and she did not shrink from a gesture that had the look of putting a man from the subordinate caste in his place, no matter his station. The disagreement on the tarmac had presumably arisen over a passage in a book she had written in which she described a meeting the two of them had had some time before, a depiction that he considered inaccurate. In it, she had complained that he thought he could lecture me and I would learn at his knee. The envelope she handed him was an invitation to see the Arizona border with Mexico, given that they had differing views on border security. Afterward, Governor Brewer denied what everyone could see. I was not hostile, she told reporters. I was trying to be very, very gracious. She went as far as to say that it was, in fact, she who felt unsafe. I felt a little bit threatened, if you will, in the attitude that he had, she said, even though the exchange had been in full view of cameras and Secret Service and elected officials. And despite the fact that it was she, after all, who was wagging her finger in his face, not the other way around. The encounter put the governor in the spotlight for the moment, and she used it to raise money for her political action committee, according to news reports at the time, and to fire up her base. She told potential donors that the message she was really giving the president that day was, 
you have one more year. An entire machinery had moved into place upon the arrival of the first head of state from the subordinate caste. A new party of right-wing detractors arose in his wake, the Tea Party, vowing to take our country back. A separate movement of skeptics, who would come to be known as birthers, challenged the legitimacy of his citizenship and required him to produce an original birth certificate that they still chose to disbelieve. His opponents called him the food stamp president and depicted the president and the first lady as simians. At opposition rallies, people brandished guns and bore signs calling for death to Obama. In response to his election, Republicans began changing election laws, making it harder to vote. They did so even more vigorously after the Supreme Court overturned a section of the Voting Rights Act, removing federal election oversight that the states, each with a history of obstructing the minority vote, said was no longer needed. Between 2014 and 2016, states deleted almost 16 million people from voter registration lists, purges that accelerated in the last years of the Obama administration, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. States enacted new voter ID laws even as they created more barriers to obtaining this newly required ID. Together, these actions had the cumulative effect of reducing voter participation of marginalized people and immigrants, both of whom were seen as more likely to vote Democrat. A paper found that states were far more likely to enact restrictive voting laws, wrote the commentator Jonathan Chait, if minority turnout in their state had recently increased. Contrary to the wistful predictions of post-racial harmony, the number of hate groups in the United States surged from 602 to more than 1,000 between 2000 and 2010, the middle of Obama's first term in office, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. A 2012 study found that anti-black attitudes and racial stereotyping rose rather than fell, as some might have hoped, in Obama's first term. The percentage of Americans who expressed explicit anti-black attitudes ticked upward from 48% in 2008 to 51% in 2012, but the percentage expressing implicit bias rose from 49% to 56%. The study found that higher percentages of white respondents now saw African Americans as violent, irresponsible, and most especially, lazy after his victory, despite, or perhaps because of, the studiously wholesome black family in the White House, headed by two Ivy League-educated parents. With rising resentments, it would not be surprising that attacks on African Americans might not only not have abated, but would worsen under the unprecedented reversal of the social hierarchy. By the second term of the administration in 2015, police were killing unarmed African Americans at five times the rate of white Americans. 
it was a trend that would make police killings a leading cause of death for young African-American men and boys. These deaths occurring at a rate of one in 1,000 young black men and boys. Early on, Obama had taken symbolic steps to bridge the racial divide. He held a beer summit with Henry Louis Gates Jr. and the officer who had arrested Gates as he tried to enter his home near Harvard, having called the summit after the uproar over his comments that the police had acted stupidly in arresting the Harvard professor. When Trayvon Martin was killed, Obama observed that if he had had a son, the son would have looked like Trayvon. But the caste system rose up, and his approval ratings fell, after even these benign gestures. The opposition party stood firm against many of his ambitions and nominees, shutting down the government time and again, refusing to confirm or even consider his Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. The caste system had handcuffed the president, as it had handcuffed the African Americans face down on the pavement in the videos that had become part of the landscape. It was as if the caste system were reminding everyone of their place, and the subordinate caste in particular, that no matter how the cast of the play was reshuffled, the hierarchy would remain as it always had been. In a paradox of caste, many whites seem to have known this, studies show, seem to have trusted on some unconscious level that the caste system would hold the first black president and the subordinate caste with which he had come to be associated in check. As deeply as some people resented a black man presiding in the Oval Office, most whites in the United States were not overwhelmingly concerned, Jardina writes, that Obama would favor blacks over their own group. Thus, within the parameters in which he was forced to maneuver, he made more headway with race-neutral goals. In so doing, he managed to reshape the country's healthcare system and lead on such issues as climate change, clean energy, gay marriage, sentencing reform, and investigations into police brutality that other administrations might have ignored altogether while guiding the country out of recession. But accomplishments from those considered to have stepped out of their place often only breed more resentment, in this case, inciting the tremors of discontent among those feeling eclipsed by his very existence. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying, James Baldwin once wrote, because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality which is why Obama's presidency and his high approval ratings masked an undercurrent of anxiety about our changing nation, according to Jardina. It hid a swell of resistance to multiculturalism and a growing backlash to immigration. In November 2012, on the day after the first black president won re-election to a second term, Rush Limbaugh, the conservative radio talk show host, went on the air and lamented to his listeners. I went to bed last night thinking we're outnumbered, Limbaugh said. I went to bed last night thinking we've lost the country. I don't know how else you look at this. That same day, 
a troubled 64-year-old man in South Florida, took the most extreme action imaginable. In the time leading up to the election, according to police, Henry Hamilton, owner of a tanning salon in Key West, told friends, if Barack gets reelected, I'm not going to be around. He kept his word. His body was found in his condominium a day and a half after the returns came in. Two prescription bottles sat empty in his dining room. Beside him was a handwritten note demanding that he not be revived and cursing the newly reelected president. Chapter 26 Turning Point and the Resurgence of Caste In the final breaths of 2015, an influential gathering of political insiders in Washington were seeing in the new year. It was the eve of an election season that was considered of great significance before it had even begun. I felt out of my orbit whenever I was in official Washington, and so I gravitated toward Gwen Ifill, whom I had known for years and had not seen in some time. Back during our days at the New York Times, I had been a narrative writer focused on everyday people rather than the halls of power as she had been, the intuitive empath to her political savant. I went straight up to her. So, I began, what are you thinking? The first seconds of 2016 were approaching, and she knew exactly what I meant. I hesitated to proffer my own opinion at first. Gwen was the beloved co-host of the News Hour on PBS. She was a long-standing, clear-eyed Washington sage, whom I, along with millions of others, admired for her brilliance and sixth sense, for how she had taken to the sharky waters of the Capitol as if born to it, always rising above it somehow. She was an embed in a political ecosystem that I had little patience for. I didn't know if what I was feeling compelled to say would sound wildly off-base or preposterous to someone as steeped in establishment Washington as she was. For some reason, I felt the need to whisper. This was supposed to be a party, after all. Champagne pouring all around us, a celebration to ring in 2016. There were people from the current administration, and perhaps people in the Democratic frontrunners' campaign, for all I knew, or in any case, certainly people supporting the frontrunner and expecting a continuing throughline of the forward-thinking perspectives carried forth by what would soon be the outgoing administration. So I leaned in and lowered my voice. People are not paying attention, I said. I believe he could win. I didn't say his name, and I didn't have to. It was still early. The primaries had yet to begin. But momentum had been building for the celebrity billionaire from the time he announced his candidacy the previous June from the escalator of his tower in Manhattan, accusing Mexicans of bringing crime, drugs, and rape across the border and vowing to build a wall. Most journalists and media outlets were not taking him seriously. So I wondered what Gwen thought. No question, she said. Of course, he could absolutely win.
I was not a political animal by any measure. But what I did know was the caste system, so I went on. I think it's all about 2042, I said. Exactly, she said, her face firm and resolute. Her response, forthright and assured, was as unsettling as it was affirming of my own instincts. Because if she, with her impeccable radar, was thinking this, then it was very likely to be true. We exchanged knowing glances of acceptance of the otherwise inconceivable, as if it were already settled, whether the rest of the country realized it or not, because it was bigger than him, had always been bigger than him. And now all that was left to do was to watch it play out. Gwen lived just long enough to see her predictions come true and tragically passed away the week after the election. This was a loss to the country at the precise time that it could have benefited from her even-tempered analysis. That prophetic conversation was the last I would have with her, and it now seems all the more powerful in the years that followed. Spring 2016 and into the summer, the election was virtually all that anyone could talk about. One banner headline after another, one time-honored norm shattered after another, a presidential candidate who blew off a major debate in the primaries, a presidential candidate caught on tape boasting about grabbing women by the genitals, a presidential candidate mocking a disabled reporter, arms and hands flailing, face jerking, as might a middle schoolers, a presidential candidate deriding the grieving parents of an American war hero who happened to be Muslim, a presidential candidate demeaning an American war hero, John McCain, because he had been captured. The latest breaking news report would be announced before we had even absorbed the last one, a new lexicon forming before our eyes. Surely you don't think he has a chance of winning, a French intellectual asked me when I happened to be in Paris months before the election. Well, yes, he could, I told her. He's on the ballot. He could very well win. America would never do that, she said dismissively. Caste does not explain everything in American life, but no aspect of American life can be fully understood without considering caste and embedded hierarchy. Many political analysts and left-leaning observers did not believe that a Trump win was possible and were blindsided by the outcome in 2016, in part because they had not figured into their expectations the degree of reliable consistency of caste as an enduring variable in American life and politics. The liberal take was that working-class whites have been voting against their interests in supporting right-wing oligarchs. But that theory diminishes the agency and caste-oriented principles of the people. Many voters, in fact, made an assessment of their circumstances and looked beyond immediate short-term benefits and toward, from their perspective, the larger goals of maintaining dominant caste status and their survival in the long term. They were willing to lose health insurance now, risk White House instability and government shutdowns, external threats from faraway lands, 
in order to preserve what their actions say they value most, the benefits they had grown accustomed to as members of the historically ruling caste in America. Trump channeled insecurities and disaffection that went deeper than economics, researchers have found. White voters' preference for Donald Trump, wrote the political scientists John Sides, Michael Tesler, and Lynn Vavrick, was weakly related to their own job security, but strongly related to concerns that minorities were taking jobs away from whites. The tremors within the dominant caste had been building long before Trump announced his candidacy. Defections accelerated over the course of Obama's presidency, sides Tesler and Vavrick wrote. This is why racial attitudes appear the more likely culprit. In fact, no other factor predicted changes in white partisanship during Obama's presidency as powerfully and consistently as racial attitudes, they said. The researchers consider this kind of group hypervigilance to be what they call racialized economics, the belief that undeserving groups are getting ahead while your group is left behind. The precarity of their lives and the changing demographics of the country induced a greater need to maintain whatever advantages they had come to expect and to shore up the one immutable characteristic that has held the most weight in the American caste system. White's racial attitudes are not merely defined by prejudice, writes Ashley Jardina of Duke University. Many whites also possess a sense of racial identity and are motivated to protect their group's collective interests and to maintain its status. Whiteness is now a salient and central component of American politics. White racial solidarity influences many whites' worldview and guides their political attitudes and behavior. Consciously or not, many white voters are seeking to reassert a racial order in which their group is firmly at the top. The 2016 election thus became a cracked mirror held up to a country that had not been forced in this way to search its origins in more than a generation and was now seeing itself perhaps for the first time as it truly was. It was the culmination of forces that had been building for decades. In a caste context, the two main political parties bear the advantages and burdens of the castes they most attract and with which they are associated. At times, the stigma and double standard attached to disfavored minorities have accrued to the Democrats, while the privilege and latitude accorded the dominant caste has accrued to the Republicans, who have come to be seen as proxies for white America. This, in part, explains the unforgiving scrutiny and obstructions faced by Democrats like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, and before them, John Kerry and Al Gore, as white support has intensified for Republicans, now seen as the party of an anxious, but powerful, dominant caste electorate. Clinton, the former Secretary of State, was widely viewed as having won the presidential debates, despite her opponents stalking of her at the podium and calling her a nasty woman. 
she was seen as having carried herself with dignity and exhibiting a polished, if stiff, mastery of domestic and foreign affairs. Yet in polling, she rarely managed to pull much beyond the margin of error against a man considered by some to be the least qualified person ever to run for president. There were many factors at work in the 2016 election, among them foreign interference and barriers to voting that disproportionately affected marginalized voters. Still, Clinton's loss in the Electoral College seems shocking, until one considers caste and the historic challenges that subordinate caste candidates, meaning African-American candidates, have often faced on Election Day, despite favorable polling. Seen from a caste perspective, Clinton perhaps suffered from a version of the Bradley effect. Inflated polling numbers that do not materialize on Election Day due to people telling pollsters what they believe is the socially acceptable answer about their voting plans, but then choosing differently in the voting booth. This is what happened to Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley when he ran for governor of California in 1982. That would have made an inability to rise above the margin of error a harbinger of a tough election day. Cast gives insights, too into the Democrats' wistful yearning for white working-class voters that they believe should respond in higher numbers to their kitchen-table appeals. Why, some people on the left kept asking, why, oh, why, were these people voting against their own interests? The questioners on the left were unseeing and yet so certain. What they had not considered was that the people voting this way were, in fact, voting their interests. Maintaining the caste system as it had always been was in their interest, and some were willing to accept short-term discomfort, forego health insurance, risk contamination of the water and air, and even die to protect their long-term interest in the hierarchy as they had known it. When you are caught in a caste system, you will likely do whatever it takes to survive in it. If you are insecurely situated somewhere in the middle, below the very top, but above the very bottom, you may distance yourself from the bottom and hold up barriers against those you see as below you to protect your own position. You will emphasize the inherited characteristics that rank higher on the caste scale. In the voting booth, Many people make an autonomic, subconscious assessment of their station, their needs and wishes, and the multiple identities they carry. Working class, middle class, rich, poor, white, black, male, female, Asian, Latino. They often align themselves not with those whose plight they may share, but with those people whose power and privilege intersect with a trait of their own. People with overlapping self-interests will often gravitate toward the personal characteristic that accords them the most status. Many make an existential, aspirational choice. They vote up rather than across, and usually not down. They believe they know who will protect the interests of the trait that gives them the most status, and that matters most to them. In the pivotal election of 2016, whether consciously or not, 
the majority of whites voted for the candidate who made the most direct appeals to the characteristic most rewarded in the caste system. They went with the aspect of themselves that grants them the most power and status in the hierarchy. According to New York Times exit polling of 24,537 respondents, 58% of white voters chose the Republican Donald Trump, and only 37% went for the Democrat Hillary Clinton. While she won nearly 3 million more votes than Trump by the popular count, she attracted a smaller share of the white vote than any Democratic candidate other than Jimmy Carter in his failed bid for re-election against Ronald Reagan in 1980. The parties have grown so divided by race, writes the political scientist Liliana Mason. That simple racial identity, without policy content, is enough to predict party identity. There was perhaps no clearer measure of white solidarity than the actions of white women in 2016. The majority of them, 53%, disregarded the common needs of women and went against a fellow white woman to vote with their power trait, the white side of their identities to which Trump appealed, rather than help an experienced woman and themselves make history. Trump was ushered into office by whites concerned about their status, Jardina writes, and his political priorities are plainly aimed at both protecting the racial hierarchy and at strengthening its boundaries. These are people who feel that the rug is being pulled out from under them, that the benefits they've enjoyed because of their race, their group's advantages, and their status atop the racial hierarchy are all in jeopardy. A subliminal awareness of the power of caste, though the word would rarely if ever be used, appears also to be at work, to whatever degree, in how the parties respond to their respective bases. The Republican reverence for its base of white evangelicals stands in stark contrast to the indifference often shown the Democratic base of African Americans, who are devalued for a host of reasons, among them their suppressed status at the bottom of the social hierarchy. For the Republicans, the singularity of focus, the sense of rallying around an existential threat, combined with the inherent caste advantages of the collective wealth and influence of its voters overall, gives the GOP a seeming advantage in firing up its supporters against Democratic opposition. For their part, Democrats constitute a diffuse majority of the electorate, but seem at times lukewarm toward a base that the party has often lectured to or taken for granted, chided, if ever there is lower-than-expected turnout, despite voter suppression, sadly buying into caste assumptions rather than bolstering their most loyal voters, as do the Republicans, with theirs. Democrats expend energy and weaken their power, pining for the die-hard voters of their opponents, the homecoming queens of the electorate, while taking for granted the majority that they already have. As the most loyal voters of their respective parties, white evangelicals are to Republicans what African Americans are to Democrats, though each makes up a minority of the total electorate. But the foremost concerns of the Democrats' most reliable voting bloc, affordable housing, 
clean water, police brutality, the racial wealth gap, and reparations for state-sanctioned discrimination, as has been accorded other groups discriminated against in the United States, have remained on the back burner or have even been considered radioactive issues for the party that African Americans help to sustain. To those who say that this would be impractical, it would be the duty of the party representing and dependent on the subordinate caste to open the eyes of their fellow Americans and make the case for a more egalitarian country. Meanwhile, the priorities of white evangelicals, ending abortion, restricting immigration, protecting gun rights, limiting government, and, more recently, the disdain for science and the denial of climate change, have become the menu of belief systems for the Republican Party. What most distinguishes white American evangelicals from other Christians, other religious groups, and non-believers is not theology, but politics, writes Seth Dowland, associate professor of religion at Pacific Lutheran University and author of Family Values and the Rise of the Christian Right. Over the course of the 20th century, the evangelical coalition entwined theology, whiteness, and conservative politics. To identify as evangelical in the early 21st century signals commitments to gun rights, the abolition of legal abortion, and low taxes. People identifying as white evangelicals, regardless of their personal religiosity, rallied around Trump to defend a white Protestant nation, Dowland writes. They have proven to be loyal foot soldiers in the battle against undocumented immigrants and Muslims. The triumph of gay rights, the persistence of legal abortion, and the election of Barack Obama signaled to them a need to fight for the America they once knew. The 2016 election became a remarkable blueprint of caste hierarchy in America, from highest to lowest status in a given group's support of the Republican. White men voted for Trump at 62%, white women at 53%, Latino men at 32%, Latina women at 25%, African American men at 13%, and black women at 4%. Unlike the majority of white voters, every other group of voters supported the Democrat in 2016. The Democratic vote went as follows. White men, 31%. White women, 43%. Latino men, 63%. Latina women, 69%. African American men, 82%. African American women, whose race and gender together put them at the bottom of the country's artificial hierarchy, supported the white female Democrat by 94%. While CNN did not break down the Asian vote by gender, Asians, like other non-whites, voted overwhelmingly for Clinton, at 65% versus 27% for Trump, tracking the Latino vote overall. Trump fared well against Clinton with all categories of white voters, at every age and education level, though his percentages were higher for whites who had no college degree. 66% for Trump, 29% for Clinton, than for those who had a college degree, 48% for Trump, 
45% for Clinton. Contrary to popular assumptions that economic insecurity was a driver of the 2016 outcome, Trump beat Clinton in most every income level except those who were least economically secure, those making less than $50,000 per year. This could be seen as a reflection of the fact that marginalized voters in general, and black voters in particular, those more likely to support the Democrat, make up a disproportionate share of voters with lower incomes. With these stark racial patterns, the 2016 election seemed a consolidation of rank among the historic ruling caste. Even though white Americans still comprise a clear political majority and continued to possess most of the country's wealth, observed the legal scholar Robert L. Tsai, it is possible to stoke outlandish fears of a coming reckoning where racial and ethnic minorities will seek to subjugate white citizens. The sense of perceived injury found a voice in 2016. These aggrieved whites are a potentially untapped well, Jardina wrote, one whose resentments are primed, ready to be stoked by politicians willing to go down a potentially very dark path. For this reason, the ruptures exposed in 2016 transcend a single election or candidate and go well beyond the initial theories of economic insecurity as the driver of the white vote. In many ways, a sense of group threat is a much tougher opponent than an economic downturn, wrote the political scientist Diana Mutz, because it is a psychological mindset rather than an actual event or misfortune. Once in office, the 45th president made no secret of his laser focus on the desires of his base. Whether out of personal animus, political calculation, philosophical disagreement, or a conviction that the last president damaged the country, Mr. Trump has made clear that if it has Mr. Obama's name on it, he would just as soon erase it from the national hard drive, wrote the New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker. Those susceptible to dominant group status threat, Mutz wrote, will do whatever they can to protect the hierarchy that has benefited them, to regain a sense of dominance and well-being. The election outcome alone had his base feeling better. A couple of days after the election, two middle-aged white men with receding hairlines and reading glasses took their seats in first class on a flight from Atlanta to Chicago. They suspected, by looking at each other and knowing the polling results, that they were likely on the same team. It didn't take them long to confirm that they were. Last eight years, one of them said, worst thing that ever happened, I'm so glad it's over. It was bigger than an election, the other one said. It was one of the most amazing events I think we'll ever witness. I stayed up all night to watch it. Yeah, well, I went to bed that night thinking I'd be crying the next morning. Woke up, best news I ever heard. There is justice in this world. They made a bad, bad choice with her, one said. The current president was a bad choice, the other said. He was in over his head. It's a beautiful day. Yep, 
Finally got it right. Yes, sirree. Extra goofy. Context of white supremacy. Uh, so we have one more section left next week. Uh, we will pick up our second audio segment today, chapter 27, The Symbols of Caste. Uh, and then next week we are all done. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Email is untiljustice at gmail.com. I'll get to folks who wrote in, at least read one of the emails first. Uh, one of our investors wrote, Greetings, Gus. This may have been discussed, but I think Miss Wilkerson was married twice. Am I interpreting this passage correctly? In chapter 13, first paragraph, he was just over a year old and had begun nipping and snarling once the presumed black pack leader, first husband, was no longer around. Uh, we had one of our female listeners. She uh, called in and said it seems she may have been married in the 90s Isabel Wilkerson where we said it seems maybe I'm not sure uh, I think she gave a name I don't remember the name of the fellow that she gave but she said she thought it may have been a black person so it may have been that Isabel Wilkerson was married twice uh, as I told the female caller who mentioned uh, Isabel Wilkerson has uh, photographs on her verified social media page of Brett Hamilton who is also mentioned uh, in this text mentioned online, he passed away. His obituary mentions Isabel Wilkerson as his wife. So I am pretty confident that she was married to a white man at some point uh, who is seems has been uh, who's passed away. But it seems she may have also been married to a black person uh, before that. Frankly, I don't care. But if we have any listeners who are curious to see, you know, how many times she's been married, was she married to a black person first? Was he a no count toxic black male that made her turn to Brett Hamilton? Let us know if you can seek out information. If you do get information that she was not married to Brett Hamilton or a white person, I would be very interested in that. We do want to strive for accuracy. But uh, as long as, yes, she's married to a white man, Brett Hamilton, as we thought the whole way through. Yeah. No problem. You can let us know how many times she's been married. Continuing chapter 25, a change in the script. One, the Delaware Senator, you've got the first sort of mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and a nice looking guy, said Joe Biden. Typical sentiments of a suspected racist and the president elect. Absolutely. Remember, they had that other fella. Uh, what was it? Uh. Was it Hey Reed? I have to double check, but it, it was another fellow who came out and, and said something similar about uh, President Obama, but standing operating procedure. Continuing, uh, Jan Brewer, she, oh, she's my favorite former governor of Arizona. The governor, blonde and slight build, jabbed her finger of the, at the leader of the free world. White women do not fear black males in the global system of racism, white supremacy. Number three, the women, the woman with the temerity to point her finger in his face 
President Obama had a two-year certificate as a radiology technician. All you need is whiteness on your CV. That's how it works. Number four, she had complained that he thought he could lecture me and I would learn at his knee. This struck me as a sexual double entendre. Learn at his knee. Hmm. I could see. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Okay. Number five, the number of hate groups in the United States surged in the middle of Obama's first term in office. I guess racism didn't resurge under Trump. <laughs> Ooh, that was a good one. Number six, Obama held a beer summer with Henry Louis Gates during a previous cows program. Pam, Pamela Evans Harris missed. Uh, commented that the that she thought the beer summit was a great example of the powerlessness of President Obama. Here was a president of the United States and a tenured cowbell Harvard professor genuflecting to a race soldier. I do remember Pam talked about that incident a lot. And she said because that was I think that was his first year in office, right? 2009, the whole beer summit thing. Pam said that incident showed her exactly what he just wrote the powerlessness she said that I guess maybe she had some confusion before she didn't grasp the totality of what powerlessness means or maybe you're just seeing a president where you have to go and apologize and oh I'm sorry I didn't mean stupid I didn't mean I'm sorry come in just have a Bud Light my bad my bad I'm gonna do better I'm gonna do better like just seeing that made her have a whole different understanding for what the power differential is between white people and non-white people, regardless of title. Pam, Pamela Evans Harris, continuing. Number seven, Henry Hamilton. If Barack gets re-elected, I'm not going to be around. Life itself is sometimes not more important than maintaining the global system of racism, white supremacy. For racist man, racist woman, or racist child, I am not aware of any black person killing themselves over Trump or Biden or Bush or Clinton. We'll bush the other time. <laughs> Just go on. Number uh, chapter 26, turning point and the resurgence of caste. Number one, Clinton perhaps suffered the Bradley effect, inflated polling numbers that do not materialize on election day. I suspect. I suspect this is the reason the polls underestimated the support for Trump during the 2020 election. White people lie a lot believe it. Number two, people identifying as white evangelicals, regardless of their personal religiosity, rallied around Trump. The ultimate religion of racist man, racist woman, racist child is the religion of white supremacy. Amen. Number three, African-American women whose race and gender together put them at the bottom of the country's artificial hierarchy, supported the white female Democrat by 94 percent. Man, Ooh. I'd already had this book ranked as the worst ever, but then when I heard that line, I was like, oh, do you have any evidence to support that? Never mind. Black misandry continuing. He writes, uh, I am not sure this is an accurate statement. Black males have lower rates of higher education, less overall income, higher incarceration rates, and lower life expectancy. That doesn't mean anything. They're all toxic black males and they voted for Trump. Uh intersectionality Kimberly Crenshaw black misandry he has hashtags with all those and we'll stop right there we'll have to come back to chapter 27 this book is so lame I am so glad we are done like this book is so lame I think Nutricide was definitely there 
not the hate you give, but uh, wretched of the earth books that are so bad. Like I would have to really fight to be vested in trying to pick out and all this. Like, hey, we had to sit through like five, six weeks of this already. Like, how much more is it? Uh, okay, it's one more week. Woo! Gonna eat something really good. I'm gonna get a snack. I'm gonna make chocolate chip cookies, and we will get through this last week. And we got Jeffrey Tubin waiting. I'm not excited about reading about OJ Simpson, but woo, Jeffrey Tubin got fired this week too. I am elated. Bring on run of his life. The people versus OJ Simpson. We just got two weeks and one more session of this goofiness to get through. The number again is seven two zero. 716-7300 the code is 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate I cannot emphasize enough Time Magazine has this book listed as one of the 100 most important books to read from 2020 man read the hand sanitizer ingredients Read the instructions on wearing your mask correctly. Read President-elect Joe Biden's transition plan. It's a whole lot of things that would be more informative and better to read than this. But I just, it's important because, as I said, you got a whole lot of younger people. We had Dr. from Florida, I'm blanking, he was just with us a couple days ago. Uh... On Monday, it'll come to me in a moment. He was just with us on Monday. We talked about his book. Oh, he's quoted in this here book. (laughs) Got to make sure we get that in. He's quoted in this here nonsense that we're reading. He was just here and he said his students love this book. Dr. Paul Ortiz. Yes, he was just here on Monday. He said, oh, my college students, they love this book. University of Florida, Gator Chomp. We love it. It's great. Voted for Florida, voted for Trump, probably. We love it. It's great. Can we get Isabel Wilkerson here? I said there's a reason for that white people promote books that are not accurate about white supremacy racism they wouldn't be making a documentary film about this book it wouldn't be on all these top 10 and top 100 book lists and prizes left and right if it was accurate information about white supremacy racism they will not come out and say oh yes we need to read Urugu oh yes we need to read medical apartheid oh yes We need to read uh, the ISIS papers. Oh, yes, we need to read Mr. Fuller or any other books that you think are really accurate about what the system of racism is and how it works. They will give you this type of fluff and silliness and you will think, yes, I'm getting it. I'm learning something and you're just being taken further and further from the problem. Second worst book I've ever read. Folks who dialed in with commentary to share if we have any folks because normally it's rare we normally don't read a book where Gus says this book is really whack and then all the people who call in to participate say oh yeah Gus I agree brother Gus it's really whack that rarely happens normally but I don't know brother Gus I think Nutricide is awesome and you just don't understand and you're a coon some days (laughs) and that type of thing that's normally it'll be major pushback it's very rare for it to just be in unison choir yes book is goofy let's hurry up and end it that I can't even think of another time when that happened for the hate you give maybe but it wasn't this bad folks who dialed with a hand up uh, line should be open if we have any outliers anybody who's on the this book is grand I've learned a lot shame on you for talking bad about Isabel Wilkerson I'm going to curse you and your children if you ever have any if we have any of those folks definitely get a hand up because we are closing 
on the end. Uh, folks who have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Good evening. Heard both of you. Let's How are you? Get... Oh, all right. On. Let's get a uh, caller at one eight five two. Oh, can't have everybody yield. Caller at last four digits one eight five two one eight five two. Wacky. If you need more time, I'll be brief. Let's hear it. Mo in Dallas. All right, thank you. Greetings, uh, guys. Greetings, listeners and callers. Thank you, caller, for yielding. Um, um, all right. Uh, we'll start with the, um, the energy segment. Um, um, if the caste system are bones of a body, then for my understanding, that would imply that just justice would be plastic surgery. This theory implies justice is unnatural. That's confusing. Um, she's a confusing person. Um, and as far as uh, uh, my sentiments on this book, I, I feel like it is a, a, a waste of paper during the pandemic. We need toilet tissue. We, we, we need things like that. And they ran the presses for this. This is uh, they they could have found something useful to do with something more useful to do with their time than than create this this thing. Um, um, okay, um, women are prone to quirky r- words and misstatements. Uh, 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 the woman prone to quirky words and misstatements. Um, she was referring to uh, the Alaskan governor, I believe, um, and. How dare she put that in this book? Like that, the quirky words and misstatements are all over this book. That governor could have been a co-author easily, like of this book. Um, uh, the 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 female governor uh, who who confronted the president and implied that she felt threatened, um, like that was just privilege or whatever, like. Racism is what it was. It was like to just like start uh, a conflict and then cry victim. That was that was. Uh, um, immigrants and minorities are most like more likely to vote Democrat. Uh, that is a false statement. Um, uh, uh, immigrants, uh, uh, in my opinion. Um, and uh, what I've seen in the polling data is generally opinion. Uh, they 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 kind of have a more Republican leaning, especially after they've been broken and um, like made aware of how the company co- country how the company country functions. Uh, like so, that that stuck out to me. Uh, I did um, Google Gwen Eiffel. Uh, when I heard her reference her in this book, um, um, and she implied that when I was one of her mentors and things like that, I saw that she spoke at the, I believe it was the Republican National Convention in 2012, and she is from of Barbados and Panamanian descent. Um, just, I just wanted to throw those facts out there. She's not a, uh, uh, she's like a, child of immigrants, so I don't think she would have um, 
some immigrant some immigrant cultures do have a, 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 a what do you say a anti-black sentiment. Um, I'm not saying that she does. I'm just saying that some do. Um, maintaining the safe the caste system was in their interest uh, when she was referring to uh, pollers, uh, uh implying that they would vote for Hillary Clinton and um, practicing deception um, because it sounded better. Um, uh, I thought that was uh, like as as uh, the emailer um, written. Um, that's that's common in the system. You know, they they will misdirect you and misinform you, especially if they're if it's like something that's going to be documented. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, Hillary Clinton won three million more popular votes. Um, um, I think that that uh, I didn't I didn't I wasn't aware of that fact. I really didn't uh, delve deep into that election. I didn't vote, um, but that does, uh, in my opinion, imply that uh, states with majority white populations or white voters have more electoral votes than. Than, than states with a more diverse population. Um, reparation for state-sanctioned demor- uh, discrimination. I thought reparations was uh, geared towards the, um, uh, America's first original crime, and that was slavery. I thought that's what reparations was for. I didn't know that it was... Uh, geared towards state-sanctioned discrimination, and African African American women, um, whose race and gender put them at the bottom of the caste system. Um, I, I too I thought that there are statistics out there uh, stating that Black women are the most educated among all demographics, um, and as for being women with children, they, there are a lot of federal benefits. Uh, um, uh, you know. Um, um, and non-negotiable, like the federal benefits and such as housing and sorts, things that, you know, uh, when, when, when they're with children that men do not qualify for. I'm one of those men who do not qualify for anything, raising a child of my own. Um, and non-negotiable, non-negotiable benefits of, of the, uh, the children's fathers. You know, we are subject to get our wages garnished. Uh, and, uh uh, just in, on a personal uh, tip, I I rarely see um, black men willing to disrespect or degrade uh, black females um, uh, with the understanding that enforcement officials will be called and we will be disciplined. Um, um, black male privilege. That's all I have on me in my life. Black male privilege. Black male privilege. Uh, let's see. Other folks. Uh, I'm still trying to figure. I don't know. Was that Thomas in New York? I'm trying to. Yes, sir. Okay. Good evening, Gus. Um, me and Mo Mo said um, you had better use. You could. Have, you need toilet paper. Very, very good. Um, <laughs> that was funny. Um, this book is. Um, I think what what did um. Tim Wise called Dr. Weldon's work pseudoscientific BS. That's what this book is. Top tier propaganda. 
she didn't just write a book about caste being the cause of our discontent, not racism. She also wrote a New York Times editorial all in one book. Um, black people trying, black people talking like white liberals, trying to convince black other black people that the only racists are the white racist conservatives. So, uh, white racist liberals, I meant to say. Um, that's that's what we got here. Um, she she's pushing white racist liberal talking points to say that all the racists in the world are these white racist conservatives when they're all both racist. Um, discontent. Want of content, uneasiness, and inquietude of the mind. Dissatisfaction at any present state of things. Uneasy, dissatisfied. To make uneasy at the present state or to dissatisfy. That doesn't sound like what we go through. I don't think when we just have a little discontent here, um, terrorism, you know, and who is she writing this book to? Um, it doesn't seem like she's writing it to black people, but she's saying the cause of our discontent. So is she saying that white people are discontent <laughs> because of the caste system, which I can see white people being discontent because of the caste system that they're in under the system of white supremacy. They're not, um, discontent over their racial status, though. Um, Obama changed the script um, back to this being a play. Uh, Obama wasn't president. And I, I wrote this before she even moved further uh, in the book and actually described the thing. But he wasn't president for seven months when on July 24th, 2009, that was the day that I decided I was never voting again, not participating in white people's political politics. I was just going to be a spectator. Um, and that narrative destroys her total caste theory. Obama said a cop, a uniform cop, not even a detective or something, acted stupidly on July 22nd, 2009. Then they made him apologize on July 24th, <laughs> and um, he had to have a beer summit mediated by Joe Biden. Um, I thought that was just, that was it for me. I was done. Uh, this, this is it. System. I don't care what you are. It doesn't matter. Um, now, um, she said that, um, <laughs> she called Neocon John McCain a moderate. <laughs> that was, I thought that was funny. Um, but that was watch your tongue. You watch your tongue. The late John McCain. You watch your tongue. <laughs> oh yeah. Hey, presidents talked about him worse than me. <laughs> uh, but no one can make the argument from this uh, liberal political and social caste context like she is, because she's avoiding racism. That Obama was mistreated, mistreated by the media and other politicians after the last four years, and still counting seemingly. What I see was unprecedented. And in fact, the upper caste, most powerful whites, definitely don't like the current president. <laughs> you know, they put, they spent 22 hours a day talking bad about him on their news programs. Um, so his base was the lower caste whites, not the upper caste. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense to me what she put there. It was more like a New York Times editorial on trying to persuade people to vote a certain way. Um, 
then she justified that most blacks she 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 um said that having stuff done for blacks um you know they thought Obama was going to do things for blacks, but instead he turned around and he did things for women, gays, immigrants, the environment, and all other things. And that was cool. That was a good thing for her, you know, because, you know, he he, he didn't. She showed that he wasn't going to do nothing for them, and, but he was supposed to, you know what I'm saying? Um, then she um, later, um, Democrat, unlike Republicans, don't reward their base. Instead, they try to appeal to the base, to sort of Republican base. Um, so the Republicans, you know, just to break down what she's saying, the Republicans reward their base, which is the white people. The Democrats, instead of rewarding their base, which is black people, they go and give those rewards to the white Republicans to try to lure them to vote Democratic. So it's like, what do we get out of this? <laughs> you know, like, uh, and this is totally justified. Uh, African-American women at the bottom of the white caste hierarchy, I disagree as well. Uh, like the brother just, or the gentleman just said, uh, all they have to do is call the police. Uh, white people take care of them very well. <laughs> you know, anytime they have a problem with black men, um, they have a built-in um, um, force to, to come and solve that problem. Um, we have no force to solve any problems for us. Uh, and I'll be my line. Thank you, guys. Get on out here, program, and talk bad about the late John McCain. Context of white supremacy. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Did we have any? I feel like there was another. Per, did we miss the person at uh, last four digits? One eight five two. Are you just listening, or did you have commentary? Hello. Oh, okay. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. See, she was the oh, one yeah. that dialed in that, that shared with us uh, that she thought Isabel Wilkerson might have another husband. So it seems maybe she was married two times. How about that? Oh, okay. You remember that. Yay. Um, but uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I guess the thing that stood out to me was, I guess she said there were only three Democratic presidents since Johnson. I mean, we don't vote for president every year. And when I did the math, after Johnson, there were, I believe they were up from Johnson, after Johnson to Obama. So that's Nixon, Nixon, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama. I think there was like seven. So three of them were Democrat and four of them were Republican, including Johnson, that's four and four, including these last two with Trump and potentially Biden is five and five. So to use that word only, I guess they think, and she's not the only author. A lot of authors do this. They think people can't count. And I think that really just, I don't know, I guess because I teach math or whatever, that rubbed me the wrong way. Like I can't, only three, I mean, there's only been so many. So it's not like there's a big majority of Republican presidents or a big majority of Democratic presidents. So, and I agree with what I heard from Thomas, because that's really the only thing I heard, because I was doing other stuff. Thank you. That is a good point. Uh, And that fits the whole narrative. I guess that's a regular talking point that'll be used. uh, The racial focal pointing to say that it's the Republicans, the conservatives 
are the racists. You know, the Democrats are for black people. We are the progressives, you know, brother Biden and, you know, brother, brother Sanders, you know, brother Warren or sister Warren, you know, Elizabeth Warren, sister Clinton. That's what we heard about in this book. That'll be a part of the narrative and that, yeah, Republicans just taken over since the civil rights movement. Great illustration, great illustration. Potentially could have another one if, you know, Biden gets to no judges mess anything up. Hey, right on five and five. We can count uh, the star six one. If you have other thoughts to share, uh, I'll get other emails in as we uh, continue. Next email caller writes in. Miss Wilkerson tells of a story of two middle aged white men on a flight. The author believes the white men we're on code about the Obama presidential term because of polling results. And I say that's false. I believe white people assume that other whites agree without knowing each other is because they have a widespread code of racism between them as white people. I agree. And in fact, we had white people on during the Obama years some of them would share anecdotes where they were out in public and they would be in the presence of another white person and it would just be assumed that they could talk bad about President Obama, call him a nigger or whatever else, and there would be white agreement. This was just assumed. And I think we've had, uh, it wasn't just one, I think we had more than one white person who gave anecdotes like this. Not saying that just, if, that is the only brand of racist. Certainly you have racists who voted for Obama and, you know, all the rest, but just, that is pretty common. Anyway, some of the notes that Let's see. I have for this. Second. I'm just glad that we are almost done, man. Uh, bu- 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 chapter. Even the the interview that we had to begin with really bothered me. The white person, white female doing the interview. She was reading a segment from the book and case popped up there. Cast case, same thing. And uh, she says, oh, there's this word again uh, with a slight chuckle. Like, so I said, like. Is that the is that the primary objective in this book to get us to stop using the term racism and switch to cased? Come on. She starts chapter 25, a change in the script, just the tackiness of the chapter. five. Like for reals, this book seems like something that was slopped together. I don't think the world in 2020 needed another book to review the Obama presidency and the white backlash. There are tons of books out that already do this care written by white people, racists written by non-white people. We don't need any more of these books and particularly a sloppily thrown together version. She goes into all of this and uh, man, I'll get through the notes as quick as we can. Let's see. I was glad she included that he had uh, a white parent, white mother. I don't know what she means exactly when she brings all of this up, him having a white mother that uh, his unusual upbringing inclined him toward conciliation of the racial divide. More just tacky metaphors. Uh, 
she talks from the same portion. She talks about the amount of star power that they had. I, I didn't hear her talk about the historic number of death threats. Maybe I just glossed over that. I'll try to pay extra attention. That's in Carol Anderson's book, White Rage. That's what I said. It's tons of books about the Obama election, white backlash. Uh, I didn't hear that. I don't know how you reconcile all this so-called star power that they have with the historic number of death threats. She did include the Tea Party and armed whites walking the streets, thought that was important. Birthers, Donald Trump. I don't know how you reconcile those two. Uh, I don't even know what you mean. Star power. When I was thinking about Michelle Obama, I did think of her autobiography post uh, first lady in her time at the White House. But what I thought about was Google having to come out and respond to why when you put in her name, it would be images of a monkey. And some other racist tripe, Google had to come out and give a response as to why this was. That doesn't strike me as star power, but, you know, maybe. So a couple, literally a couple lines down from all this star power, racial divide, uh, conciliation, whatever that means. She accuses former Arizona governor Jan Brewer, suspected racist. Oh, excuse me. This is uh, not. Uh, Jan Brewer, not quite yet. Uh, This is uh, John McCain's uh, running mate, Sarah Palin. Uh, I don't know why she didn't just name her. Uh, She has a pattern uh, of doing that. It's been with black males frequently, but she didn't name Amber Geiger either. (laughs) Name who you're talking about. Uh, Of Sarah Palin, as though everybody knows who you're talking about. What if they're reading this book 10 years later and they don't know who the quirky governor from Alaska is? Anyway, she has the gall, the audacity to accuse Sister Sarah Palin of word salad. I said, man, if that isn't the raccoon trying to shame the zebra, if that isn't the shark yelling at the dolphin for splashing, the peacock, never mind. You get my point. I mean, come on. We have sat through like two months of this nonsense and you have to, we can't even get, she can't even do an interview without giving a response without, well, I just got to go into another metaphor here. And the interviewee is Chuck. So many metaphors in here. Get out of here. Second worst book I've ever read. Uh, let's see. The Nobel Prize portion. Uh, I forgot. Obama did get that uh, Nobel Prize, but I remember there was extraordinary backlash to him getting the Nobel Prize. So many people uh, were outraged. It was not a, oh, the world was joyous. Yes, we've elected a Negro or mulatto or no, it was what? What did this Negro do to get? I went to a party. I don't even go to parties wasn't even invited and the nigger's house where it was was upset furious that I was there why didn't you leave him in the vestibule but I was at this party and it was mostly white people that was one reason they were furious I was there the cows was in existence and I talked about this in the archives 2009 way back I think Mark Riding was the guest on the program for that day he adopted two white children he was late and I talked about this before he got there anywho mostly white people at this party and we're not talking about anything of value. All of a sudden, somehow it gets that no can. These are progress Seattle, Washington. Cannabis is legal. Like what? 
they're like, uh, that no count Obama. Can't believe he won the Nobel Prize. Foolishness. Can't believe it. Just giving out award that's got affirmative action for the prizes now. And so I listened intently for a while. Now, I didn't jump up and down and start calling people racists. I didn't go crazy. I did what we always talk about. You stay in the question lane. I said, do you remember who won the Nobel Peace Prize previously? So whatever, 2008. Do you remember who won the Nobel Peace Prize previously? Hold the black male whose apartment we're at. He is a teacher and pursuing a PhD. So lots of education. Most of the people there are affiliated with the University of Washington. Uh, educated, upper caste members, if you will, dominant caste members. I said, do you remember who won the Nobel Peace Prize last year? Hmm. Uh, hmm. Last year. Do you know? Let me think. Ooh, that's a good one, Coon. That's a good one. Last year, who won? Uh, I think Jimmy Carter won it sometime in the last five years. Uh, no, no. I know Jimmy Carter won it sometime before. That was the response. Real talk. And I said, man, (laughs) why is it such a big deal then if Obama won the Peace Prize? If you don't even remember who won it last year, like, do you get like a billion dollars? Like, is it, is it a problem? Like, you don't even know who won it last year. It can't be that big a deal. That was, I was, why did you bring that coon? Anyway. I thought she should have included that unless I'm making all that up. But I distinctly remember there being a backlash about all that. Anywho. uh, I appreciated at least she included that most white people did not vote for him either time. Whatever that's worth. Mm -mm -mm. She says from the moment forward, white Americans overall moved rightward toward the Republicans as the country enacted more egalitarian policies. I don't even know what policies you're talking about. Uh, And she doesn't go into detail. Then she just goes into voting patterns over the last 75 years or so. Uh, I don't even know what you would point at. If you said Obamacare, they've been trying to take that away, like relentlessly for the last, I don't know, since it started. And once you dig into the details, uh, the areas where they have a lot of black people, it doesn't work as well. And they've talked about that directly, directly rejecting federal funds because we're not interested in coon care. No, thank you. So, I mean, that's why I say it's it's sloppy and it's leaving out a lot of the details in terms of racism, white supremacy, how bad it is and what we're even talking about. She quotes, she says, for many, the ability of a black person to supplant the racial case system wrote political. <laughs> Let me tell you how tacky this is. Woo, so I'm going to have to read the sentence correctly without uh, Miss Wilkerson's interjections. She quotes an Emory professor. We went to school together. Like <laughs> We took classic. Oh. Uh, Andre Gillespie. That's a cowbell just on a personal level, whatever it means to you. Uh, who's at Emory University and way more intelligent than I could ever be. But we went to school together. So let's hear what my former classmate says. I'm going to give it the full quote. The ability of a black person to supplant the racial case system. That's the only reason she included this quote. And I think some other of our listeners, readers have pointed that out. At times, it seems like the only reason 
he is including this is because, oh, someone wrote a book who is prominent or not, and they have the word case there. I'll include that, too. That's kind of lame. But let's give the quote. Andre Gillespie says the ability of a black person to supplant the racial case system was the manifestation of a nightmare which need, which would need to be resisted. See, I didn't even read it correctly. Sorry, Andrew Gillespie, my bad. I haven't even improved since our days in class together. Um, she quote, the first chunk of it, just because it includes case, and then the last chunk of it, talk about word salad just to pick up a metaphor from another victim of racism. A nightmare which would need to be resisted. There's a reason I say really watch those metaphors. Resist the urge to be specific about what we're talking about. That's what is lacking. Non-white people are not geniuses. We're not experts on white supremacy racism. We need precision. This system operates in a very scientific manner. That's what we are lacking in our analysis and lame books like this that would be better served as toilet paper help with promoting confusion. Let's see. I said blonde. I said it's in the book 11 times. So that's numerous times now where I put it like, wow, did we have to get in the Jan good that the governor was a blonde white woman, or maybe she thought it was important. That's a part of the uppercase power. If that's the case, then I would, I, I would have appreciated her giving a little bit more detail because I don't think there's even a paragraph that goes into more detail about blonde. I mean, she could have included more detail about hair and all that. Uh, I'm just noting that blonde has popped up in the text. Uh, I think I've highlighted it every time. <laughs> it's been important in the encounter somewhere. Uh, let's see. White women are not afraid of black people. I totally forgot that President Obama was the food stamp president. I can't believe it. My memory is that bad. Like, whoa. Uh, they even had images and such of watermelons out on the White House lawn. Like that they were. Got, anyway, yeah. Great times. Great times. Uh, yeah, I can't think of any black people who killed themselves because President Trump was going to be elected or Bush, either one, Reagan. Mr. Fuller lived through a lot of flagrantly racist white presidents, right? From 1929 through. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, <laughs> if anything, the tackiness uh, and dedication that whites have to the system of white supremacy racism, that this is so intolerable that I'm willing to check out as opposed to live under Negro rule. Wow. Uh, resurgence. Like the titles are so tacky, like cast the change in the script. It's just slap. It's for someone in my opinion, if you have an accurate understanding of white supremacy, racism, this is insulting to read. And since I've concluded that Isabel Wilkerson is not confused about white supremacy racism, I have extraordinary suspicions about why you would write 
a book like this in the middle of election season to begin with because it is clearly not to provide accurate information about caste, racism, or whatever other wacky terms you want to insert. I will stop there. Uh, I don't think we missed anyone. We'll shove off to our second audio segment. If we missed folks, uh, write a note and we will be sure to include your commentary before we wrap things up. So we'll pick up chapter 27. Hallelujah. We're almost done. Uh, the symbols of caste, Isabel Wilkerson, the origins of our discontents context of white supremacy. Second worst book I've ever read. Chapter 27, the symbols of caste. The Confederate general who led the war against the United States over the right to hold human beings hostage for all their natural-born days, Robert E. Lee, or more precisely, a bronze sculpture of Robert E. Lee, rose two stories high on its granite pedestal in the center of a village green in Charlottesville, Virginia. On this day in the late summer of 2017, the statue in honor of a hero of the former slaveholding states was now covered with a thin black tarp that had taken two men positioned in cranes something like an hour to stretch across the length and width of it over the general's head and the American saddle-bred horse he sat astride. The statue was under a shroud while city leaders tried to figure out what to do with it. The monument had drawn the attention of the world after a rally of white supremacists turned deadly just weeks before. The rally brought together disaffected members of the dominant caste in protest of the city's plan to remove the statue. It was as if the passions of the Civil War had been resurrected and had merged with a resurgent Nazism, which the forefathers of the young Americans at the rally had fought to vanquish back in the middle of the previous century. The heirs to the Confederates and the heirs to the Nazis could see how much they and their histories had in common, even if ordinary Americans did not. On that day in August 2017, Confederate flags and swastikas interfused above the ralliers, men mostly, some with haircuts as severe as their faces. Together the night before, they had marched through the campus of the University of Virginia, extending Nazi salutes, chanting Sieg Heil and White Lives Matter and Jews Will Not Replace Us. They held tiki torches in the night air, reenacting the torchbearers' rivers of light at the old processions for Hitler. The following day at the rally itself, the neo-Confederates and the neo-Nazis arrived well-armed, which in turn drew counter-protesters bearing signs of peace. Then, a white supremacist rammed a car into a crowd of counter-protesters, killing one of them, a paralegal named Heather Heyer, and wounding dozens of others. Now the city was trying to keep the statue from public view, but every time the city covered it, someone would come and remove the tarp, releasing Lee's likeness in protest. The city would again send in the cranes to put the tarp back over it. The day I happened to visit Charlottesville shortly after the rally, the city was prevailing. From the center of the green, in the very middle of town, rose a jagged black trapezoid 
tied at the base like a giant shifferobe, wrapped for protection until the movers arrive. It looked for all the world like a giant trash bag from which you could make out the crown of the general's head and the nose and tail of the horse at opposite ends. The whole effect of the giant trapezoid in the middle of a stately park brought more attention to the general and to the monuments of the Confederacy, not less. Though the tarp had been a short-term compromise to keep it from public view. Tourists came in search of it. Guess that's him right there, a man said, crossing the street to take a closer look. The tourists waited their turn to take their picture in front of the cloaked general. Then they made the pilgrimage to the street across from the statue, the street where Heather Heyer had been killed. It became a block-long memorial to her, piles of dying roses and sunflowers, heartbroken messages scrawled in the pavement and on the sides of brick walls, a plea for humanity. We are witness, never forget. The minute we look away, the minute we stop fighting, bigotry wins. There is no more room for hate, that all men are created equal. Across the United States, there are more than 1,700 monuments to the Confederacy, monuments to a breakaway republic whose constitution and leaders were unequivocal in declaring the purpose of their new nation. Its foundations are laid, said Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery's subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. With us, all of the white race, however high or low, rich or poor, are equal in the eye of the law. Not so with the Negro. Subordination is his place. He, by nature or by the curse against Canaan, is fitted for that condition which he occupies in our system. The Confederacy would lose the war in April 1865, but in the succeeding decades would win the all-important peace. The Confederates would manage to take hold of the public imagination with gauzy portrayals of the lost cause. Two of the most influential and popular films of the early 20th century Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind fed the country and the world the Confederate version of the war and portrayed the people of the degraded lowest caste as capable only of brute villainy or childlike buffoonery. Even though the 13th Amendment in 1865 ended slavery, it left a loophole that let the dominant caste enslave people convicted of a crime. This gave the dominant caste incentive to lock up lowest caste people for subjective offenses, like loitering or vagrancy, at a time when free labor was needed in a penal system that the dominant caste alone controlled. After a decade of Reconstruction, just as African Americans were seeking entry to mainstream society, the North abandoned its oversight of the South, pulled its occupying troops out of the region, and handed power back to the former rebels, 
leaving the survivors of slavery at the mercy of supremacist militias nursing wounds from the war. The federal government paid reparations not to the people who had been held captive, but rather to the people who had enslaved them. The former Confederates reinscribed a mutation of slavery in the form of sharecropping and an authoritarian regime that put people who had only recently emerged from slavery into a world of lynchings, night riders, and clansmen, terrors meant to keep them subservient. As they foreclosed the hopes of African Americans, they erected statues and monuments everywhere to the slave-owning Confederates, a naked forewarning to the lowest caste of its subjugation and powerlessness. It was psychic trolling of the first magnitude. People still raw from the trauma of floggings and family rupture, and the descendants of those people, were now forced to live amid monuments to the men who had gone to war to keep them at that level of livestock. To enter a courthouse to stand trial in a case that they were all but certain to lose, survivors of slavery had to pass statues of Confederate soldiers looking down from literal pedestals. They had to ride on roads named after the generals of their tormentors and walk past schools named after clansmen. Well into the 20th century, heirs to the Confederacy built a monument with Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis carved in granite, bigger than Mount Rushmore, in Stone Mountain, Georgia. If the Confederacy had lost the war, the culture of the South and the lives of the lowest caste did not reflect it. In fact, the return to power of the former Confederates meant retribution and even harder times to come. By the time of the rally in Charlottesville, there were some 230 memorials to Robert E. Lee in the United States, including the Robert E. Lee Hotel in Lexington, Virginia, Robert E. Lee Park in Miami, Florida, and Robert E. Lee Creek in Boise National Forest in Idaho, 2,000 miles from the old Confederacy. There are scores of plaques, busts, schools, and roadways throughout the country. A Robert E. Lee Street in Mobile, Alabama, a Robert E. Lee Drive in Tupelo, Mississippi, a Robert E. Lee Boulevard in Charleston, South Carolina, a General Robert E. Lee Road in Brunswick, Georgia, and a Robert E. Lee Lane in Gila Bend, Arizona. Students take classes at Robert E. Lee High School in Jacksonville, Florida, and in Tyler, Texas, among others, and at Lee Junior High School in Monroe, Louisiana. Eight states in the Union have a county named after Robert E. Lee. Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Texas. The third Monday in January is Robert E. Lee Day in both Mississippi and Alabama. Robert E. Lee was a well-born graduate of West Point Academy, a pragmatic and cunning military strategist, a political moderate for his times and his region, and a Virginia slaveholder who saw slavery as a necessary evil that burdened the owners more than the people they enslaved. 
The blacks are immeasurably better off here than in Africa, morally, socially, and physically, he once wrote. The painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their instruction as a race, and I hope will prepare and lead them to better things. How long their subjugation may be necessary is known and ordered by a wise, merciful providence. Like other slaveholders, he made full use of the painful discipline of which he spoke. In 1859, three of the people he enslaved on his Virginia plantation, a man named Wesley Norris and his sister and cousin, fled north and were captured near the Pennsylvania border. They were forced back to Lee's plantation. Upon their arrival, Lee told them that he would teach us a lesson we would never forget. Wesley Norris later recounted. Lee ordered his overseer to strip them to the waist, tie them to posts, and whip the men fifty lashes and the woman twenty on their bare backs. When the overseer resisted, Lee got the county constable and told him to lay it on well, which the constable did. Not satisfied with simply lacerating our naked flesh, Norris recalled, General Lee then ordered the overseer to thoroughly wash our backs with brine, which was done. This was common practice and standard procedure during much of the 246 years of slavery. Had these and even more gruesome atrocities occurred in another country at another time to another set of people other than the lowest caste, they would have been considered crimes against humanity in violation of international conventions. But the slaveholders, overseers, and others in the dominant caste who inflicted atrocities upon millions of African Americans over the centuries were not only not punished, but were celebrated as pillars of society. Lee was never called to account for what he did to the Norrises, nor to the many families he broke apart as an enslaver. The children he separated from parents, the husbands from wives. Even after leading the war of Southern secession that ended with more casualties than any other on this soil, Lee faced few penalties associated with treason. President Andrew Johnson, the Tennessee Democrat and one-time slave owner who succeeded Abraham Lincoln after Lincoln's assassination, granted amnesty to most of the Confederates in a bid to move on from sectional tensions and to put the matter to rest. Lee did no jail time and suffered little censure, though he was no longer permitted to vote, and he was forced to relinquish his plantation, which the government coveted and converted into Arlington National Cemetery. It turned out that after the war, many white Northerners felt a greater kinship with their former Confederates who had betrayed the Union than with the people whose free labor built the country's wealth and over whose freedom the Civil War had been fought. The North's conciliatory embrace of the former Confederates compelled Frederick Douglass to remind Americans that there was a right side and a wrong side in the late war, which no sentiment ought to cause us to forget, adding that it is no part of our duty to confound right with wrong or loyalty with treason. 
Robert E. Lee went on to become president of a college that would later add his name to its own, Washington and Lee University in Virginia. This granted him social standing and a worshipful legacy and allowed him a platform to weigh in on issues of the day with authority if he chose. His reputation only grew after his death in 1870. As the country embraced segregation north and south, with redlining and restrictive covenants keeping black people out of white neighborhoods and the races separate, he became not just a southern hero, but a national one. He is interred at a chapel named after him on the campus of Washington and Lee, Confederate flags flanking, up until recently, a mold of the general in repose. Among the memorials in his honor well beyond the South, there came to be plaques and busts of him in the Bronx and in Brooklyn, elementary schools named after him in Long Beach and San Diego, and five different Robert E. Lee stamps issued by the U.S. Postal Service. Usually, it is the victors of war who erect monuments and commemorations to themselves. Here, an outsider might not be able to tell which side had prevailed over the other. At two o'clock in the morning on April 24, 2017, a SWAT team positioned its sharpshooters at strategic locations at a dangerous intersection in downtown New Orleans. K-9 units patrolled the grounds and perimeter. At the center of the targeted area, men in face masks and bulletproof vests went about their perilous duty in the darkness. Others had refused to risk their lives for this, declined even to attempt the operation after the death threats and firebombing that preceded this moment. These men in face masks were the only ones willing to take up the mission. They were removing the first of four Confederate monuments in the city of New Orleans. Tensions had been building since 2015, when Mayor Mitch Landrew, a fifth-generation Louisianan whose ancestors had been in the state since before the Civil War, decided it was time for the Confederate statues to go. That June, a gunman inspired by the lost cause of the Confederacy massacred nine black parishioners as they prayed at the end of Bible study at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Under international pressure, the South Carolina State Legislature and Governor Nikki Haley agreed to remove the Confederate flag from the state capitol and put it in the Confederate relic room in the state museum. South Carolina had been the first state to secede from the Union in the run-up to the Civil War, and this gesture opened the way for other states to follow if they could gather the will. Landrew was moved by this and was further awakened by his friend, the jazz trumpeter Wynton Marsalis, to the perspective of the descendants of enslaved people who had been terrorized under the Confederate banner. The monuments in question included one for Confederate President Jefferson Davis and one for General Robert E. Lee, the latter of whom had no direct connection to New Orleans, but whose statue was erected by the city as the Jim Crow regime took hold after the end of Reconstruction. Now, more than a century later, the city was within its rights to remove its own property, 
and Mayor Landrew thought it would be a fairly straightforward process of public hearings and a vote by a city council as progressive as the city it represented. With the country newly reminded of the enduring nature of white supremacy, supporters came forward, including an influential citizen who pledged to donate $170,000 toward the cost of removing the monument, as long as he could be assured of anonymity. The city tested the idea with the public. At one hearing, a Confederate sympathizer had to be escorted out by police after he cursed and gave the middle finger to the audience. A retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, Richard Westmoreland, came at it from the other side. He stood up and said that Erwin Rommel was a great general, but there are no statues of Rommel in Germany. They are ashamed, he said. The question is, why aren't we? As time wore on, though, things got ugly. The city had trouble finding a contractor to remove the statues. Every contractor who considered the city's request got threatening attacks at home, at work, and on social media. It turned out that not one construction company in New Orleans wanted to touch it. Finally, a contractor in Baton Rouge agreed to do it, but he pulled out too, after his car was firebombed. The Confederate sympathizers made it clear that any company that dared step forward, Landrieu wrote, would pay a price. The faithful of the old Confederacy held candlelight vigils at the monuments and clogged the city hall switchboard, cursing and threatening the receptionists. Soon the benefactor backed out of his promise of donating money for the removal effort. If it were ever discovered, he said, I'll get run out of town. The issue was now dividing all of New Orleans. People who had served for years on civic boards quit, Landrieu said. There was a deep, mean chill we felt when we entered a room for a public event. Some of the mayor's own neighbors and some of the people he thought of as friends averted their gaze when they saw him. He had not anticipated the ferocity of the opposition. Finally, the city found a construction company willing to take on what had become hazard duty in a virtual war zone. It could be seen as karma that the only construction crew willing to risk their lives to remove the Confederate statues was African-American. Due to the dangers of the operation, the company charged four times what the city had anticipated to remove the three largest monuments, and said the company would only go in if there was police protection. By now, the city had few other options if it wanted the statues gone. The mayor decided first to remove a monument to a supremacist organization called the White League, because white citizens seem to have the least attachment to that one. Still, the city took no chances. That night, the men wore long sleeves and masks, both to protect their identities and to conceal their skin color. Cardboard covered the company name on its trucks and cranes and hid the vehicle license plates. Still, the pro-Confederate forces poured sand in the gas tank of one of the cranes. As the workers proceeded to remove the obelisk in pieces, drones lurked above them, taking unauthorized photographs of the operation.
People in the crowd trained high-definition cameras on the workers to try to identify them. Finally, the pieces of the obelisk were down and driven to a storage shed. The next month, the Robert E. Lee Monument, a larger-than-life bronze likeness, arms crossed, standing on a 60-foot marble column in a manicured circle in the center of town, was the last of the four to be removed. His figure dangled from a crane in full daylight, and this time to cheering crowds. Mayor Landrieu gave a speech that day to remind citizens of why this needed to happen. These monuments celebrate a fictional, sanitized confederacy, he said, ignoring the death, ignoring the enslavement, ignoring the terror that it actually stood for. They were more than mere statuary. They were created as political weapons, he would later write, part of an effort to hide the truth, which is that the Confederacy was on the wrong side, not just of history, but of humanity. The day that New Orleans wrested Robert E. Lee from his column, the Alabama state legislature sent a bill to the Alabama governor, Kay Ivey. As in most of the former Confederacy after the post-civil rights realignment, Republicans now dominated Alabama. They were now fighting to keep monuments to the very cause that the one-time party of Lincoln had fought in the Civil War. The new Alabama bill sent to the governor that day made it illegal to remove any monument that had been in place for 20 years or more, which in effect meant that nobody could lay a hand on a single Confederate statue in Alabama. An ocean away in the former capital of the Third Reich, Nigel Dunkley, a former British officer and now a historian of Nazi Germany, drove along a curve of what is left of the Berlin Wall. He pointed to the neoclassical buildings of the old Weimar Republic that were for a time run by the Nazis and had been reclaimed since the reunification of Germany. We drew near the Brandenburg Gate, which survived the Allied bombing in the Second World War, and then reached a wide-open space in the very center of downtown. The office towers and government buildings came to a halt and gave way to a modernist Stonehenge on 4.7 acres, the size of three football fields, where once there had been the death strip to catch defectors in the Cold War. 2,711 concrete rectangles, as if a field of chiseled coffins of varying heights stand in formation, separated by just enough space for people to walk between them and to contemplate their meaning. The stones undulate and dip toward the center, where the ground hollows out, so that when a visitor reaches the interior, the traffic noise dies away, the air grows still, and you are trapped in shadow, isolated with the magnitude of what the stones represent. This is the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe who perished during the Holocaust. There is no sign, no gate, no fence, no list of the six million. The stones are as regimented as the Nazis and as anonymous as the captives shorn of identity in the concentration camps. Since 2005, 
the memorial has borne mute witness to anyone who wishes to come day or night. The designer of the memorial, Peter Eisenman, a New York architect, chose not to explain the meaning of the number 2711 or very much else about the installation. I wanted people to have a feeling of being in the present and an experience that they had never had before. Eisenman told Der Spiegel the year it opened. And one that was different and slightly unsettling. The company that once produced cyanide gas for the concentration camps now provides the protectorate applied to the concrete stones to prevent graffiti and defacement, which might be seen as either an act of atonement from the perspective of some, or the very least they could do from the perspective of others. The installation is the most imposing of a series of memorials to the people killed under Hitler's reign. We have a memorial to everyone victimized by the Nazis, Dunkley said. There is a memorial to homosexuals who perished. There is a memorial to the Sinti and the Roma right outside the Reichstag. We have lesser memorials to lesser groups. And then we have the stumbling stones. These are the micro-memorials of discrete brass squares the size of one's palm inscribed with the names of Holocaust victims and placed throughout the city. More than 70,000 of these stumbling stones, known as Stolpersteine, have been forged and installed in cities across Europe. They are embedded among the cobblestones in front of houses and apartment buildings where the victims whose names are inscribed on them are known to have last lived before being abducted by the Gestapo. Here lived Hildegard Blumenthal, born 1897, deported 1943, died in Auschwitz, reads a stumbling stone clustered among others outside an apartment building in western Berlin. Nearby are the stones for Rosa Gross and Arthur Benjamin, who were deported in 1942 and who perished in Riga. The stumbling stones force the viewer to pause and squint to read the inscription, force the viewer to regard the entry doors the people walked through, the steps they climbed with their groceries and toddlers, the streets they strolled that were the everyday life of real people, rather than abstractions of incomprehensible millions. Each one is a personal headstone that gives a momentary connection to a single individual. Leaning over to read the names on the stumbling stones forces you to bow in respect. Nigel Dunkley made a slow turn near the side of the Reich Chancellery in the Mitte of Berlin and pulled his old Volvo up to a parking lot off Wilhelmstrasse. It was an asphalt square at the base of some concrete office and apartment buildings, and it had a low guardrail around it, like parking lots everywhere. You see that blue Volkswagen parked next to the white minivan, he asked me. From the car window, I looked past a recycling bin on the sidewalk, and then over to the asphalt lot, the white lines separating each car, and saw the Volkswagen he was pointing to. It was parked in front of the low-straggled branches of untended barberry bushes. 
right there, underneath that Volkswagen, was Hitler's bunker, Nigel said. The hideout had been built 30 feet underground and protected by two meters of reinforced concrete in the event that Hitler should ever need a secure location. This is where Hitler spent the last weeks and hours of his life, hiding out from enemy shelling as the Allies closed in on them, where he heard that Mussolini had been executed and his Wehrmacht overcome on every front, where he married Eva Braun at the last minute as his closest confidants turned on him, where he shot himself in the head after biting into a cyanide pill, and where his hours-long wife had bitten into a cyanide pill just before him on April 30, 1945. His body was unceremoniously dragged to a nearby lot and set afire. In America, the men who mounted a bloody war against the United States to keep the right to enslave humans for generations went on to live out their retirement in comfort. Confederate President Jefferson Davis went on to write his memoirs at a plantation in Mississippi that is now the site of his presidential library. Robert E. Lee became an esteemed college president. When they died, they were both granted state funerals with military honors and were revered with statues and monuments. An American author living in Berlin who happens to be Jewish and to have been raised in the South often gets asked about Germany's memorials to its Nazi past. To which I respond, there aren't any, Susan Nyman, author of Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil, has written. Germany has no monuments that celebrate the Nazi armed forces, however many grandfathers fought or fell for them. Rather than honor supremacists with statues on pedestals, Germany, after decades of silence and soul-searching, chose to erect memorials to the victims of its aggressions and to the courageous people who resisted the men who inflicted atrocities on human beings. They built a range of museums to preserve the story of the country's descent into madness. They converted the infamous Villa at Vance, where 15 men worked out the details of the final solution to kill the Jews of Europe, into a museum examining the consequences of that fateful decision. The country converted the Gestapo headquarters into a museum called the Topography of Terror, a deep dive into the founding of the Third Reich. As for the man who oversaw these atrocities, Germany chose quite literally to pave over the Führer's gravesite. There could be no more pedestrian resolution than that. In Germany, displaying the swastika is a crime punishable by up to three years in prison. In the United States, the rebel flag is incorporated into the official state flag of Mississippi. It can be seen on the backs of pickup trucks north and south, fluttering along highways in Georgia and the other former Confederate states. A Confederate flag the size of a bedsheet flapped in the wind off an interstate in Virginia around the time of the Charlottesville rally. In Germany, there is no death penalty. We can't be trusted to kill people after what happened in World War II 
a German woman once told me. In America, the states that recorded the highest number of lynchings, among them the former Confederate States of America, all currently have the death penalty. In Germany, few people will proudly admit to having been related to Nazis or will openly defend the Nazi cause. Not even members of Germany's right-wing Alternative for Germany party, wrote Nyman, would suggest glorifying that part of the past. The Germans who may privately mourn for family members lost at the front, Nyman wrote, know that their loved ones cannot be publicly honored without honoring the cause for which they died. In America, at Civil War reenactments throughout the country, more people typically sign up to fight on the side of the Confederates than for the Union, leaving the Union side sometimes struggling to find enough modern-day conscripts to stage a reenactment. In Germany, some of the Nazis who did not kill themselves were tracked down and forced to stand trial. Many were hanged at the hands of the Allies for their crimes against humanity. The people who kidnapped and held hostage millions of people during slavery, condemning them to slow death, were not called to account and did not stand trial. In Germany, restitution has rightly been paid and continues to be paid to survivors of the Holocaust. In America, it was the slaveholders who got restitution, not the people whose lives and wages were stolen from them for twelve generations. Those who instilled terror on the lowest caste over the following century after the formal end of slavery, those who tortured and killed humans before thousands of onlookers, or who aided and abetted those lynchings, or who looked the other way well into the twentieth century, not only went free, but rose to become leading figures. Southern governors, senators, sheriffs, businessmen, mayors. On a gray November afternoon, couples with strollers, tailored women with their shopping totes, commuters in wool and tweed all make their way to the Wittenbergplatz subway station off Kurfürstendamm, the buzzy, neon-lit Fifth Avenue of Berlin on the west side of the city. They converge at the front doors to the station and there to the right of them is the sign, nearly a story high, for every commuter, every shopper, every store clerk, every couple on a date, every backpacked student and tourist to see. Translated from German, it reads, Places of horror that we should never forget. Then it lists the places never to be forgotten. Auschwitz, Dachau, Bergen-Belsen, Treblinka, Buchenwald, Sachsenhausen, and half a dozen other concentration camps. It was through these station doors that thousands of Jews took their last look at their beloved Berlin before being forced onto trains that would carry them to their deaths. This fact, this history, is built into the consciousness of Berliners as they go about their everyday lives. It is not something that anyone, Jew or Gentile, resident or visitor, is expected to put behind them, or to just get over. They do not run from it. It has become a part of who they are because it is a part of what they have been. They incorporate it into their identity because it is, in fact, them. 
It is a mandatory part of every school curriculum, even for grade school students, and it is never far from view for any citizen. This is not to say that everyone is in agreement as to the lengths to which the country goes to reinforce this history. What seems not in contention is the necessity of remembering. A former member of the German parliament was once talking with Nigel Dunkley and thought out loud about his discomfort with the massive stone installation to the European Jews near the Brandenburg Gate, which some have compared to a cemetery in the middle of downtown. Why can't we have a nice park with grass and trees and a proper monument? The former parliamentarian said. Every time I drive past, I feel I'm being punished by this higgly-piggly mess. If that is what you really think, Dunkley said to him, that you're being punished, then you are being punished. When Dunkley takes German students on tours of the history of the Third Reich, he asks them their reaction to what they've seen. Do you, as Germans, feel any guilt for what the Germans did, he will ask them. They will go off into groups and have heated discussions among themselves, and then come back to him with their thoughts. Yes, we are Germans, and Germans perpetrated this, some students once told him, echoing what others have said. And though it wasn't just Germans, it is the older Germans who were here who should feel guilt. We were not here. We ourselves did not do this. But we do feel that, as the younger generation, we should acknowledge and accept the responsibility. And for the generations that come after us, we should be the guardians of the truth. Oh, my Lord. Can we get some of the extra cyanide tablets? Can they help a brother out? My God. Second worst book ever. And I mean, it is going to take a lot to move this here book. And I can tell you, if there were some spelling errors some sloppy editing we we would have a new worst book ever but i mean second worst hey branded again this is one of those times where i always remind folks hey gus t's assessment of white supremacy racism is astronomically different than most of the other victims of racism which is fine we're not looking for consensus but again it's not even close the bulk of the folks you hear talking about this book, Victims of Racism. Oh, my God. Best book ever. Can't wait for Ava, Dunay, Ava, Ava DuVernay's film. Oh, my gosh. Poignant. Powerful. Change your understanding of racism. What Oprah said. Save your life. It will save us. I say if you run out of toilet paper and you have the misfortune of having purchased this book. Don't even feel bad. Context of white supremacy. Let's see. Get in one email and then we'll get to the callers. First person. Chapter 27. The fact that reparations were paid to the slaveholders of the antebellum South. Uh, antebellum South. 
and not to the victims of slavery shows how sincere the so-called good abolitionist whites really were. They even allowed so-called Jim Crow to go on for decades before they refined their system to not allow the outright mistreatment that was allowed in the Jim Crow era. All the reverence for Robert E. Lee should also be a constant reminder to victims of how the more powerful whites allow all of this public display of reverence of so-called persons who fought against the United States Union. It seems like the author is giving so much detail about Robert Lee in hopes of the readers drawing a comparison with Donald Trump when it comes to the separation of families at the border and Lee selling family members in chattel slavery, with whites getting other whites on code when it came to removing the Confederate monuments in New Orleans. It's insinuated that the so-called good whites were scared out of helping remove the monuments, and that's folly one of my favorite words we've seen when whites are are set on doing something they're willing to risk it all when they believe in a cause the monuments weren't high enough on the priority scale replacing white supremacy with justice not a priority at all Second worst book ever. Hmm. Folks who dialed in, the number is 720 716 7300. The code 564 pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, all the folks who were with us first time around, uh, let's see, retired firefighters should be here as well. Uh, we didn't hear from you first time. If you had any comments that you want to share, sir. You were speaking to me, Gus? Yes, sir. Just I saw your hand up. We didn't hear from you the first time. I wanted to see give you the first chance to speak if you had any thoughts or if you're just listening, that's fine, too. Yes, sir. Uh, there's some uh, some thoughts. Uh they were mentioning about uh, Robert E. Lee and where he, uh, with buildings, parks, you know, that sort of thing that he, uh, that are named after him. Uh, I think, I think that there is a Robert E. Lee Elementary School uh, in Miami-Dade County. It's something else other than that park that's associated with, with him also. Uh there is a senior high school that is named after the white supremacist Andrew Jackson. Uh, also, that is now predominantly populated uh, with students who would be considered to be non-white <laughs> at the school. Uh, uh, I, I was just thinking about when when uh, the report was the, the reading was talking about uh, was talking about uh, who was going to remove some of these uh, monuments and statues uh, from New Orleans. Of course, I am not in support of removing any of those, but uh, uh, I, I would say uh, if uh, there is an issue with uh, private companies doing it. Why not the normal uh, uh, business 
that normally does things of that nature, which is uh, U.S. Army engineers <laughs> uh, uh, to dismantle uh, such things, which have uh, white people from all over the quote-unquote concept called United States in those green uniforms. Uh, although, like I said, I'm not in favor of removing them at all anyway, myself. Uh, Nazi Germany, Nazi Germany, the, the, the part that was talking on Nazi Germany. Um, at that particular point in time, at that particular point in time, uh, basically what it was, it was, it was uh, uh, white people, white supremacists that were debating over uh, racist refinement or just a more militant-like uh, point of view on on uh, dealing with uh, uh, non-white people uh, at that time, and uh, of course, uh, you know that's something that white people do over the course of time uh, in the uh, in the uh, not not establishment in the expansion period of racism and white supremacy. Uh, uh, and you know, with the, it took a transition in and around during that time. And, uh, I would say that refinement won out, uh, uh, in that, in that course. Um, uh, whereas, uh, of course the, the war that is identified, uh, inaccurately in my opinion as the civil war, that was, you know, uh, decades well ahead of ahead of uh, what took place in the 1940s, and uh, in this part of the world, uh, there was a similar battle, but it was not. It wasn't a situation to whereas uh, it. Uh, I put it this way: in Europe, in Europe during that time. Uh, I don't think I don't think they could have afforded to keep fighting like they were killing each other. Uh, and then again, somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there's not too many Semites in Europe right now. I don't think uh, they were allowed to go to a place called Israel right now. Uh, Israel, Israel, and, and and also here. Uh, from uh, that part of the world called Europe. Uh, so that has a lot to do with why it's not that much of uh, celebrating or remembrance of that particular time, similar to what is going on, what has been going on here. Uh, it's just not that many of, of those people uh, to make a big deal out of it. Uh, the, the, the uh, people who were uh, in concentration camps in Europe now, they're in Israel as well as uh, a lot of them are right here based on that particular situation. So that makes a difference out of the two. I, I think I understand that part. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, let's see. Other folks that we Miss Totally, a uh, silent warrior uh, joining us 
It is, I definitely would not be awake at this hour to talk about this lame book. You can be sure. Uh, Let's see. It is 4.42 a.m. Friday morning. Silent Warrior, joining us live from Norway. Good to hear from you, sir. Can can you hear me? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Okay. Thank you. I just have to check on the device. Yes, this is a lame book. I can I I tend to think of the book as a very long article in a newspaper. It's a very long article by a journalist. Um, I'll just make some comments starting from chapter twenty-five, if I may, real quickly. Um, she made a comment about Lyndon B. Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act and uh, predicting that Democrats would lose the South, meaning Democrats would lose five people in the South. But she does not include the quote that is also attributed to Johnson where he says that blacks will vote Democratic for 200 years. I thought that was revealing that she didn't put that because that would start the statement that black people are almost always voting Democratic, which kind of, you know, the fact that she doesn't show that makes sense because later in the book, when she she seems to start laying out some of the cases that Democrats say are the most important, such as race and gender and so on, she, she, lay, she has a section in the book later where it's almost as if you're reading from the Democratic um, agenda. Moving on. Uh, my paper found that states were far more likely to enact restrictive voting laws if minority turnout in the state had recently increased. As I experienced that in student politics, um, after I was uh, president, they started to enact rules to make it harder for international students to participate in elected positions if they did not speak a region. So, um, so they could vote, but they can't, you know, to make it easier for Norwegians to not have to include the international students who speak English. So I've seen that happen. Um, are people killing themselves? So she, she could have added the opioid crisis as well to that. Um, the book seems to be like a collection of a lot of anecdotes. When she talks about Donald Trump in the next chapter being the least qualified, I, I'm curious because isn't Trump running a large business? for a couple of decades. was that different from being a governor like Ronald Reagan was? Moving on. Um, she started talking about the, how the Democratic vote was split. And um, she, when she, she lists five men, white women, Latino men, Latino women, African men, and she says African-American women whose race and gender put together puts them at the bottom of the country's artificial hierarchy. But has she, in this book, has she talked about the relationship with gender to her um, thesis about caste? Or is it, you know, are we just, uh, just drink it up now that she's started? I wish to just, uh, she thinks that she's preaching to the choir when she speaks about gender. 
don't think she's made a strong enough case about gender or or patriarchy. Um, but there's sections in the book I haven't read, so I might be wrong. I what was interesting to me is in backlash in the chapter about backlash, where she talks about the political scientist Diana Moots, where she says that in many ways a sense of group threat is much a tougher opponent than economic downturn. This is where she's talking about why white people would vote in 2016 the way they did. She says, because it is a psychological mindset rather than an actual event or misfortune. So she's talking about her psychology. The, the person that she's referring is talking about her psychology is a much more important um, indicator, predicator of how groups of people behave. And it just made me think that this is why the ISIS papers is a much better um, analysis than this book, which is a collection. I mean, the best parts of this book are a collection, are the quotes from other probably more well-written books with better analysis that she doesn't include anyway. So that's well. moving on in the next chapter, Symbols of Caste. It keeps she keeps talking she I keep getting this feeling of um that she's making a case for good white people. The concept of good white people or white people who are not racist. That seems to me a hidden part of her thesis. You know, that they are here to the Nazis who the Germans who are better at pointing out their mistakes. All right. She has, um, she talks about these uh, bricks in the streets about the Jews who have been taken from them, who and killed. I have seen some of those in Norway. She even has a poem for a plea for humanity. We are witness, never forget. The minute we look, she has a poem for them, but she can't name the black NBA player who was discriminated earlier in the book. Mm. Not, however, she has a good quote from Alexander Stephen, the vice president of the Confederacy, talking about how the Confederacy, its cornerstone rests on the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man and that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. That's a great quote. I mean, for me, the value in this book is access to other books, other quotes, some information that I didn't see, not the analysis. Um, very good point she makes about how the Confederacy lost the battle, but, long, but won the war in the long term. I thought that was was useful. I mean, she's making a case for the system of white supremacy taking care of itself. And one about she talks about Robert E. Lee. I think she she goes on quite long to make her a case about Robert E. Lee being memorialized and so on. And I believe Trump will get this treatment. He's going to get this treatment. Um, either well, he he leaves office now or four years from now. Is gonna Trump will get this treatment. I mean, he was getting this treatment even before he was elected. There, there were memes of Trump in an emperor, emperor garb or emperor Trump and song. You will get the treatment, but she doesn't notice that. She, she doesn't have the insight to see that. 
She talks about um, the Jews and that there's no statues of uh, Germans in Germany. But I'd like to know, what caste are the Jews? Does she say that anywhere? Where do Jews fit in her concept of her thesis of a caste system? Because as I understand it, Jews are white now. They're like in a placeholder status for whiteness, except for when white people want to get serious about um, French genetic annihilation, and then the Jews become not white, and they're being told, they're being said that they won't be replaced by Jews. Once again, she minimizes the work of black men. And she says, talking about the construction crew willing to risk their lives to remove the Confederate statues was African-American. But most likely they were African-American men. Can we get a shout out? I mean, she would talk about African-American women being at the bottom of the so-called bottom of the entire social system because of their race. And then she'll drop gender in there and their gender. Uh, NBA players can't get uh, their names called. The construction crew can't be recognized for their gender. But they're the ones that are risking assassination for just doing the job. Assassination for just doing the job. More good white people talk talking about this obelisk that was being removed by these black men, but uh, it would be, <laughs> be insightful if she could mention that this obelisk is patterned off African, African architecture. All right. Um, stones, yes. And she talks about uh, Hitler biting the cyanide pill and dying and so on. And that, you know, this is how the Germans don't memorialize their racist rights. But there is a whole industry that talks, that is, that has literature which states that Hitler escaped Germany and was aided to escape by the Allies and went to Argentina with a whole bunch of other Nazis. You know, we know about the Nazis that went into the space program or went to Russia. Anyway, I don't believe the story that Hitler died in Germany um, because there's a system of white supremacy. Okay, she talks about the Germany after decades of silence and so searching shoes to erect memorials to the victims of its aggressions and to the courageous people who resisted. I talk about aggressions and not just use the word genocide. And while she's talking about Germany and how good they are again, for the Jews, what about people who look like her? Where are the memorials for the Africans that Germany genocided about 50, 60 years before the Holocaust in Africa? And the Germans talking, did the Germans have any memorials for that? Any repatriations for that? Can't you talk about that? Okay, moving on. Um, I knew a German girl here in Norway who told me that her granduncle was a Nazi. 
she didn't seem too ashamed to say it either. She wasn't super proud, but she was like, yeah, that's in my family. Um, yeah, once again, what cast are the Jews? Interesting quote um, about this uh, white person in Germany saying, why can't we have a nice park with grass and trees and a proper monument? Every time I drive past these uh, memorials, I feel I'm being punished by this higgly piggly mess. The response is, if that is what you think, that you're being punished, then you are being punished. I thought that was a good quote and a good point that in Germany, these memorials are to punish white people. But keep in mind, once again, they are to punish white people for killing a bunch of people who are now classified as white. Not Africans. More good white people. Bullshit. Um, interesting that uh, I always felt uh, that Harper Lee's book, How to Kill on Mockingbird, that Atticus Finch was no good guy. So it's good to hear her talk about it, to mention that really quick. Um, if people are choosing or given the choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? This term whiteness is, should be replaced with system of white supremacy or racism. So if people are given a choice between democracy and racism, how many would choose racism? But uh, it seems to be in this industry of talking about race, these years, the accepted way to talk about race is to use terms like whiteness and privilege that allows racism to just slip through. Um, um, Norway has a universal health care system. 33 of the taxes are taken for that. 33% of income is taken for taxes to make that happen. And um, so this is where she starts talking about the democratic agenda. <laughs> the price we pay for uh, caste system and probably why the book was pushed out so quickly in this for this time because so that people could read this and at the last part at this near the end of the book he starts eating some democratic um, politics making a case for so she's making a case for um, better health insurance and then then she started to she starts talking about uh, coronavirus. Oh, we haven't got that far into the book, so if we could pause right there. We didn't okay, good, that great. Far. Yeah. Then that's well, my comment so far. Awesome. I was just say thank you. Awesome. Much obliged, uh, Silent Warrior. Uh, let's see. Our... Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hold on one second, Thomas in New York. Our mm-hmm. female caller in New York. Uh, did you have commentary, ma'am? You should be with us also. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Good evening. Um, <laughs> Silent Warrior basically said most of what I wanted to say. What I wanted to comment on was, um, I think she mentioned something about the Confederates being celebrated and meaning that they um, won the war. And I'm thinking like both the Union and the Confederates were both white supremacists. To me, it's just that a certain kind of white supremacy uh, 
I guess, rained. But at the end of the day, it was white supremacy. Um, her talking about Germany and comparing it to America. And I was thinking with Germany, Germany, it seemed to me anyways, that they had um, international pressure to do the stuff that they did for the so-called Jews, where in America, it wasn't a world war, but something internal. So they did not get that external pressure from other countries to implement the stuff that Germany implemented um, in Germany. And the other thing that stood out to me was um, when she mentioned um, slaveholders in America getting money or getting some kind of compensation. And that is not only in America. That also happened, um, I think, in Haiti. The French got money and even the, the British got money as well. And um, yeah, I'm glad that's only one week left. It was a rough, 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 <laughs> rough book to get through, you know. And yeah, I think that's it. Thank you. She said three roughs. You could probably add four or five more, like rough. We just finished White Dog. Thomas in New York. Yes, um, very rough. Um, the Nazi Jew history lesson um, could have been written by the ADL itself. Um, now, only did the Jews get reparations. They also got retribution. They got stones on houses, train stations. Oh, man. German soldiers were lynched. I don't recall Confederate soldiers getting lynched. Um, you know, man, it's just so much there. I'm not even going to go into The statues of Robert Lee. Um, only in the system of white supremacy as the general that lost the war against the United States gets street schools, counties, whole counties named after him. Statues. They even got a street named after him in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, <laughs> the people he was fighting against. Uh, how can any of this history be contextualized and, you know, this to me was just shoddy work on her um, by not bringing up that uh, Republican uh, Rupert B. Hayes um, when he ran against Democratic Samuel Tilden. Um, that led to the Compromise of 1877, which the Southern states were awarded 20, um, the 20 winning electoral votes, like, Philly, like Pennsylvania, um, to Hayes in exchange for the the Republicans agreeing to withdraw the federal troops from the South, which led to the end of the short-lived Reconstruction we had. So, I mean, it, I mean, how could you leave that part out? Um, the lower-caste whites, in my opinion, what I saw in Charlottesville was lower-caste whites, the white supremacist part, going up against the more affluent whites, the college kids that were... Black Lives Matter and stuff. That's what I saw. And they were both racist. They just wanted to fight over who was going to run the system, how it was going to run. Lastly, um, the Allies did not move on Hitler. Um, I believe Russia got to him at least seven days before the U.S. got there. And I'll be my line. Thing. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Did we miss anyone? Anybody have a hand up that we... Can I, can I be heard? Mo in Dallas. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. 
uh, I took a few notes. Uh, Heather Hare, Heather Hare. She mentioned Heather Hare twice. Higher, sorry, Heather Higher. She mentioned her twice again, uh, uh, but she didn't, you know, mention an old dude who got shot in his living room. Uh, shout out to him, I guess. Um, I have a question for the callers after I finish my notes. Um, uh, Robert Lee, uh, blacks are better off in servitude than they are in Africa. Um, I wrote that down because I'm actually uh, revisiting Uncle Tom's Cabin, and that sentiment is echoed a lot in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, I didn't know um, Robert Lee's plantation uh, got uh, repurposed into Arlington Cemetery, Arlington uh, National Cemetery. Uh, I think this is another um, a way of memorializing uh, Robert Lee because you know it was supposed to be the, the country's fallen soldiers there. Um, I believe that's the purpose of Arlington Cemetery. Uh, uh, the gunman murdered nine parishioners at Mother Emanuel Baptist Church. Uh, she she mentioned uh, no name. No, no, no cast position, no, no, no reason uh, or no context to why he shot the church up or anything. She just and glossed right over that. Um, I thought that was very um, disrespectful of the victims. If you're going to put that in a book, she could explain that the way she waxed poetically about Robert Lee. You know, and uh, there, was, there were there were. Uh, many Confederate references around it, but no mention to the fact that uh, why um, Dylan Roof did what he did. Um, uh, that the, the black construction company charged four times the amount um, to remove the uh, monument in New Orleans. I feel like they undercharged. Um, I would have, I would have, uh, negotiated future contracts. If I'm going to do this work, you're going to hire me again. That is very dangerous. And I would have uh, tried to, uh, this is just me personally, but I would have tried to set myself for, for a while to go on that dangerous work. That was very dangerous work. Um, when they did get their equipment you know, manipulated, I think this is, I think she wrote that they put sand in the gas tank or the tanks of the vehicles. Um, she named the Jews uh, Jewish uh, Holocaust victims from uh, in Europe from last from the last millennium, but doesn't name black people from this decade. I thought that was interesting. Uh, and she kept saying the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Um, she did not uh, speak vaguely uh, about their caste, and she did not overuse the word caste when referring to the Jews. The only time she used caste in that particular chapter, I believe, was when she was referring to. Them. To black people, uh, uh, and uh, uh, let's see here. My question to the uh, to the callers: um, You guys can either sit on it or, or when well, I sit on it, but you can either you know think on it or 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 give your opinion if that allows. Do you think that this book would get the same praise if a black male, all other things remaining equal, if a black male had written it? Same thing. Um, if he had a white spouse and and he was a New York Times journalist, just change her gender from male to female. Do you? Does anyone think that this book will get the same amount of praise, or 
and not as many critiques because I see a lot of conflicting information in the book. That's all I have on you, my line. Mm. Much obliged, Mo and Dallas. I have to think on that a minute because it was until you threw in white spouse that threw uh, what they call it a monkey wrench into the whole equation because at first I was like oh yeah they've done that before and blah 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 and we've had tons of books that were poorly written by I didn't particularly like ta Coates Between the World and Me either it's not anywhere near as bad as this but I didn't like that either uh, and I thought that got a lot of attention but he's not married to a white woman so Ooh, that uh, I have to think. I have to think on that one. If a black man was married to a white woman, could they write a book as bad as this and still get? Take into account patriarchy too, man. <laughs> black male patriarchy. You got to consider that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Black male privilege. Yeah, I. Mm. I'm gonna have to think on that for the spouse part. Through, yes, sir. Let's, he said a quick answer. Yeah, only if the spouse is a white male, they're in a same-sex relationship. Mm. Got to <laughs> okay. So checkmate, checkmate. I could see right. that. I could see that, but I'm not aware of that, and that would still not be the same response because I'm not sure if you would have legions of black people and Ava DuVernay jumping up and down if it was a black male and he was married to a white man and wrote a sloppy book on racism like mm, mm, Oprah Winfrey still going to say that's the book that I don't I have to think on that I have to think on that I have to come back to that one next week like, because, uh, yeah, man. So that means an acknowledgement to my white male. Yeah, I'm going to have to think on that. I have to think on that for a week. Yeah, think on it. You got to. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <sighs> Black male privilege. Uh, get my notes in quick. This is such a lame, but it just gets worse as we go. Like, I'm so glad Jeff Tubin. That's what's light at the end of the table. Jeff Tubin. Jeff Tubin. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah, I'm so glad. It should be mentioned like 15 times. She mentioned had the hair. She didn't even mention Reverend Clementa Pinckney was an elected official in South Carolina, not just some Joe Schmo who was at a church and got killed. She didn't even mention him. She mentioned Heather Hare at the beginning of the book, and now we got all the way at the end. She went full circle and got her again. Are you serious? We can't get a name for Botham John. We can't get a name for Thabo Cephalosha, Reverend Clementa Pinckney. Nah, nigger males, moving on. Got it. Even the black male construction? Nah. But Heather Hare. Remember I said that at the time, like John Brown, they just force her on you. And, and it's not even that she got a name drop. We got lots of detail about Heather Hare and the monument. I cracked up laughing. They uh, One of my favorite words when we get to talking about racism, the minute we look away, the minute 
we stop fighting bigotry. I don't even know what that people even still say that is 2017, 2020, whenever bigotry. That's that is what we are uh, working against. We got the second birth of a nation mentioned this week for the context of white supremacy. Again, the star of D.W. Griffith's birth of a nation is Gus the renegade second time this week consecutive programs uh, they had the canine units in New Orleans uh, when there was the threat of danger when they were going to take the statues down the white dog I said were they going to chomp on the race soldiers like I didn't see those pictures does anybody do they have pictures of a German shepherd and he's taking a chunk out of some race soldier who's trying to keep a stat did they do that did that happen in Virginia or do it maybe I'm I'm just ignorant. I'm illiterate. I just didn't check the news properly. We'll get that for next week, though. All this about Mitch Landrew, like, oh my God, <laughs> this is just the coolest white man out there. Like, get out of here, Mitch. Rand- we wouldn't even have a white mayor in New Orleans if it wasn't for Hurricane Katrina. That's how Mitch Landrew became mayor. I said governor, mayor in the city of New Orleans. All the black people or large numbers. It was around 100,000 black people get permanently displaced and the ones that got killed and all the rest. Wow. Big impact on the electorate enough that now we got a white mayor for the first time in decades at a city that was dominated, at least in terms of population numbers by black people. So you would think they would at least have a little bit minuscule local, but not even enough to get mayor. We got Mitch Landrew and bless Lord praise for Mitch Landrew. We talked a lot about Mitch Landrew in Katrina after the flood. Gary Rivlin read that for the uh, 10 year. Well, I won't call it 10 years from the flood, but lots of lots more pertinent information. I wanted to vomit just to hear all this about this good white man taking down statues that I am in agreement with the callers. Keep all these statues up until the system has been vanquished. So I'm not going to cheer about all that. Um, yeah, I thought that was, I mean, that's all we get about the, what happened with the church in South Carolina, Emmanuel nine, they call it. That's all we're going to get this, you know, little snippet. And as was said, not even any detail about what prompted Dylan roof to do this. She didn't name him either. Not that that, you know, big deal. Um, but the, why did he do this to say inspired by the lost cause of the Confederacy? Oh, come on now. <laughs> come on. I mean, is it that short shrift? We got to slop this together so quick. We got such poor editing. We got a limited number of papers. We want to really dull this down and you know make sure this isn't too long. So we can't even get a sentence as to explain why. Because he was talking about raping black males, right? Yeah. Anyway. Mitch Landrew was lame. His sister, too. Moon Landrew too suspected race soldier talked about all of them uh, they said memorials to lesser groups I didn't hear a memorial to Hitler's African victims they got whole books by that title Hitler's black victims Clarence Lusane Hitler's African victims written by a white author we had them both on the program I didn't hear any detail about that at all Talked about the Rhineland bastards, black male soldiers coming over and raping German white women. They had whole coins with in the archives. Let's see. 
Yeah, this is a really lame book. It gets worse as it goes. Glad we'll be done next week. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad we'll be done next week. And I have to think, if a black male married a white person and wrote a sloppy book like this about racism and concluded it with an acknowledgement to their white spouse and how they tr- that's see if it was no spouse component I would immediate yes nothing to think about but the sp- I have to think and come back to that next week anywho dance time watermelon day on the plantation we will be done with this filth next week yes uh, man it has been extra 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 rough but we persevered I'm going to write a book report. Maybe everybody should, because I mean, lots of your, we, anybody, if you have offspring, Thomas has offspring in college, might have to come home one day and say, oh man, look here, we're reading Case, isn't this awesome, written by a black female, she talks all about racism, it'll be great, you've been talking about this for years, you got that coon who listens to the radio program, we got a book here, and it'll be awesome, I'll know all about racism. That, and particularly when the documentary comes out, Ava, du, Ava DuVernay sprinkles her magic on this, like, Exponent, and it'll be exponential damage that nobody can directly blame on racists, right? Because it'll be a black author and a black filmmaker. Like, what are you talking about? You certainly. What are you saying? I'm saying it's the second worst book ever, and that racists do an amazing job promoting incorrect material about white supremacy racism, like this and the accompanying film. Last word next week we'll be here tomorrow for the uh, neutralizing workplace racism that's it and then we'll be here on saturday compensatory call-in global sunday talk on sunday so every day rest of the week probably get some more time to gripe about this lame book much obliged for the folks who uh, have toughed it out hope it uh, at least is exercising your brain computer because this is important we need to learn how to use logic Uh, And just being able to pay attention, the metaphors, the contradictions within the book, just being able to pick that out is important because, man, there are lots of books like this. Lots and lots of people think right on. Case is, I mean, wow, best top 100. Save your life. Best book you can read to understand racism. That and Tim Wise. Lots of work to solve this problem. Going to eat my butternut squash lasagna. I'm so excited. It will make me feel better after this trash. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Might need a drink, something after all this. Like, my goodness, I'm going to have butternut lasagna. Mm, butternut squash lasagna. In addition to being sober, Still stay hunker down, like probably be rowdy for the rest of the year for lots of reasons. And the Rona, I mean, many reasons to hunker down, stay safe. If you got to go out, be alert. Lots of armed whites, militias and all the rest. <sighs> yeah, be alert. If it looks like somebody is being loud, you should already be thinking they're probably armed. White person, non-white person, doesn't matter. We are super risk averse 
for the rest of 2020. No need to take chances uh, with what we have already seen this year year. Uh, in addition to being sober, hunkering down, really. But if you got to go out, you are buckled. Uh, if you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Again, we need to be vigilant what's happening around us. And then we want to make sure we are not coming in contact with Amber Geigers, race soldiers, badge or no, just doing the little things buckled up, not on the cell phone, paying attention, really hunkering down if we can. That's it, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with Another black person, no name calling. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.